Astonishing Legends would like to thank HelloFresh, Stitch Fix, Simply Safe, Squarespace, Wondrium, Mint Mobile, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. In our last episode of this series, we took a preliminary dive into the legend of the mysterious monumental complex of Pumapunku in Tiwanaku, Bolivia. Now we're back to talk more about not only why it was built, but what for and by whom. Tonight, we will address those ideas and, of course, one of the biggest unanswered questions about the complex site, how was it built? There is certainly no shortage of theories about that, and we'll be here to cover as many of them as we can. We were surprised by some of them ourselves, and we've heard everything at this point. It turns out Pumapunku may be another one of those ancient sites that connect to more of our present daily lives than we might have imagineered. Whatever the case, we're ready to take you further down the rabbit hole on this topic than you're likely to have ever been before. Thank you for joining us again. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The Tiwanaku is the greatest Native American empire that many Americans have never heard of. Every time we find something that reflects the complexity of the society, it adds to our deeper knowledge of the origins of complex societies worldwide. Archaeologist Paul Goldstein, Department of Anthropology, UC San Diego. Join us tonight for the final part of our series on Pumapunku. And we're back. John Hurt? Yeah, I actually just watched Contact again. Oh, nice. And plus, and then I'm having Earl Grey tea right now, so. Oh, okay. How appropriate. Well, we are back, <laughs> folks. If, if the archaeologists come to see what we're up to, we're actually still here, so. It's like too soon, man. Come back in 4,000 years, Manocha. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, we have a great show tonight, folks, but first, a little very quick housekeeping. Clean as you go is what my mother-in-law used to say, God rest her soul. She was right. That used to be on a <laughs> sign at the Denny's, my favorite Denny's yeah, uh, franchise, well. at the waiter station. That's, you know, the little island that's in the middle of yes. the restaurant, which I love because it's a little like a, a little break, a little island. But there's a little sign there that said, clean as you go. And it's like, that's very good advice. We want to remind you about our new bi-weekly show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which our patrons can access at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. Uh, between our main show and that, you can hear versions of Astonishing Legends 52 weeks a year if you want to. Yes. And that show drops every week. The main show is dark. And we're working on some other bonus content for patrons as well. In other news, very quickly, our good friend and legendary Pennsylvania-based UFO encrypted researcher, Stan Gordon, has a brand new book out, and we told him we'd be delighted to give it a shout-out here on the show, and it's called Creepy Cryptids and Strange UFO Encounters of Pennsylvania, Bigfoot, Thunderbirds, Mysteries of Chestnut Ridge, and more. Case book four. Yeah, there's already three case books. Yeah, it's a lifelong project. He has had some very weird stuff come across his desk. And uh, it's just definitive. We love talking to Stan. Yeah, he's, he's been at it since he was a teenager. He pioneered a lot of things, including a radio network of investigators back when uh, nobody was figuring that kind of stuff out. Really, really amazing 
body of work. So it's important to remember that being a researcher, an investigator like Stan, or an experiencer like Terry Lovelace or or Ken Webster, it doesn't pay very well, especially when (laughs) COVID kiboshes whatever income you may have had from showing up at conventions to meet people and share your stories. So when we mention these guys, all of whom we've come to think of as friends and their books, uh, we're doing that because we love to hear their stories. And while book sales often don't amount to much, you'd be surprised, it definitely helps. And uh, Mm -hmm. we don't recommend them unless we think they're good reads and well-sourced stories. So in this case, if you want to get Stan Gordon's new book, we've made a tiny URL for it to make it easy, and that's tinyurl.com slash creepycryptids. Check it out right there, tinyurl.com slash creepycryptids. Yes, and it's already on our webpage for this series, so go check it out there if you can't remember tinyurl.com slash creepycryptids. Well, speaking of Ken Webster, we've been in ongoing touch with him, and don't forget about his newly published second edition of The Vertical Plane, which you can get at tinyurl.com slash verticalplane, P-L-A-N-E, 2-A-L, tinyurl.com slash verticalplane, P-L-A-N-E, the number two, and then A-L. And he specifically wanted to get an edition out there for folks that was affordable, since speculators like Rich Hannum are hoarding the first edition. (laughs) Yeah, well, when Rich bought those copies for us, that first edition wasn't so expensive. It's nuts now. It's crazy. Uh, Yeah. Anyway, folks, there are links in our show notes for both of those books. Also, if you can remember their titles, you can just look them up on Amazon. They're right there. The Vertical Plane. There's a second edition in Creepy Cryptids. Oh, and one last thing. We might be dabbling around on a new platform, Mm. but finding out which one it is takes a little sleuthing on our website, where sometimes a hand is afoot. Weird. Okay, well, let's dig back into Pumapunku. You get that? Yeah, I got it. We got it. I think everybody got it. Okay, good. Well, Scott, let's get right back into a few things that we thought were really fun that we save for part two, but we think they're important because yeah. since some of the earliest history we even know about, 11,000-year-old Gobekli Tepe, and what's going on today with people who, get it, have fun with skulls. Oh, This is from the area, halfway around the globe here. Uh, The first thing, generally, we're going to talk about the Amara Skull Festival that goes on to this day with the Andean people in Bolivia. But first, there will be a few adult themes discussed in the next section here, just about uh, what people get up to when they have parties with skulls. I don't remember that part of this section. Uh, there's a mention there, which I thought like, oh, yeah, I, that would be is the model that you put down all the time. That would be hard to explain to your child. Okay. Okay. Copy so yeah. uh, before I say it, I will give another warning. I should point out, by the way, I was thinking about this. <laughs> and Sarah asked me about this the other day because we're always like, yeah, you know, we know people with families are listening and have kids. And, th- and that is sort of our rule about when we're going to bleep something or not. The Junk Drawer Show, which is on Patreon, is pretty much uncensored. So just going to warn you about that. We figure you got to be old enough to have a credit card to listen to that one. So (laughs) Uh, (laughs) this show shall remain. And I don't know what you're planning here with these skulls because I Oh, no. Don't let your imaginations run wild. But there are parties and people do things when uh, parties are going on. So, But the first thing we're going to do, and I don't know what happened socially here, but we're going to go all the way back, make that connection again to Gobekli Tepe and the skull cult that apparently was there. Now, we talked a little bit about this when we did the Gobekli Tepe series, and I think we even mentioned the same article, but it popped up again uh, doing my research here to find connections, because that's what I do. Uh, And this article comes from archaeology.org entitled 
Skull Cult at Gobekli Tepe. And it posed from Sanlurfa, Turkey by Jason Urbanus. And this came out in January, February of 2018. So Gobekli Tepe is one of the world's most significant yet mysterious archaeological sites. Between the 10th and 8th millennia BC, people there erected a series of massive stone circles where groups gathered for religious or social purposes. This year, researchers revealed that microscopic analysis of bone fragments found at the site suggests that human skulls may once have hung there on prominent display. The fragments belong to three partially preserved skulls that were carved and altered after death. This is the first indication of how Gobekli Tepe's inhabitants may have treated their dead, and archaeologists believe it may provide evidence of an early Neolithic skull cult that exhibited the decapitated heads of either venerated ancestors or dispatched enemies at designated spots. The discovery further underscores the complex ritual behavior exhibited at Gobekli Tepe. Marks on the three partial skulls indicate that they were defleshed, modified, and even Mm. painted. Oh, my. Deep incisions were repeatedly carved into the skulls with stone tools to create grooves that ran up the forehead and toward the back of the head. According to researcher Julia Greski of the German Archaeological Institute, the skulls may have been suspended by a cord that wrapped around the head and passed through a small drill hole at the top. The incised grooves would have prevented the cord from slipping along the smooth surface of the bone as it dangled. Quote, the three modified skulls attest to the special treatment of certain individuals and represent an entirely new category of find, she says, one which testifies to the interaction of the living with the dead at this important early Neolithic ritual center. Couple of quick things. The grooves were a matter of practicality. You didn't want your skull <laughs> flipping all around in those strings. Uh, yeah. Secondly, just for people that don't know or people who are new to the show and you're hearing us talk about Gebekli Tepe, which sounds like a crazy series of words, it is a really <laughs> amazing place. We actually did a three-part series on this. The first one, it was episode 108, so it was 120 episodes ago, if you can believe that, Forrest. That came wow. out in uh, May of mm-hmm. 2018, so you can find that in our back catalog. And if you like this series, that three-part series is really cool, too, and there's a lot of things in common uh, between Gebekli Tepe and Pumapunku, right. in terms of the society, less the construction, some of the construction stuff, but yeah. more the society, I would say. Yeah, half a world away. I mean, we're talking here, uh, Bolivia and Peru in the area around Lake Titicaca, and then modern-day Turkey over there, Yes, the Levant. This is how I see the part two laying out here, Scott, is that we're going to okay. talk about the why. We're still talking about the why. Yeah, okay. and then <laughs> maybe the second half is we'll talk about the how. Yes. So this is maybe why. This uh, fantastic archaeological wonder of Tiwanaku was built and why Gobekli Tepe was built because it had extreme spiritual significance to the people that built them. And there's connections there. So it's a worldwide people thing, but it's also a worldwide spiritual thing and experience thing. And we'll see some what is sometimes called simultaneous discovery about some yes. building techniques, perhaps. I don't know if we're going to talk about that Kurzgesat video we watched about the possibility of alien or foreign cultures being buried <laughs> in our ancient, ancient past. But Maybe. one of the things they talk about in the development of society was yeah. really cool because this phrase I thought summed it up perfectly is local bursts of complexity. Right. And that is something that uh, groups can have without having any contact with each other, which is mm-hmm. really interesting because people were developing things, you know, figuring out the same things depending on yeah. uh, the time period and where they were. But not always at the same time because the age <laughs> yeah. of their civilizations or cultures might be different. So it's it's right. more related to their development from their inception as opposed to 
oh, we're coming up at exactly the same time on opposite ends of the planet, and we right. both invented X, Y, or Z. So it's fascinating. The analogy that I like is that more time has passed since Gobekli Tepe and the time of Cleopatra than the time of Cleopatra to the invention of the cell phone. Right. It's really lopsided. Like so much was that we can't find out what was happening between 9500 BCE, the current era, and then uh, then you're talking about the time of Cleopatra. Like, you know what I'm saying? That's really yes. lopsided. So who yeah. knows what was going on there? And also my other point was that that's just, uh, we just literally scratched the surface on that one. And right. the site here, so little of it has been excavated so far. I'm going to say this later in the show, but I'll say it right here now. A great listener of ours. Yes, Tom. Yes, Tom Barnett. Uh, he is Tom Barnett. at R-O-M-P-S-K on Twitter. Uh, he gave us some family photos at Pumapunku and Tiwanaku to use. And so those are in our gallery. But one thing he said the locals will tell you there is that, oh, yeah, like 1% of this place has been un- oh, so far excavated. There's so much more to be discovered. Right. And what will that be? So maybe part of its secrets. Just like throughout time and some of the, when you're trying to figure out what happened at these sites, there are people living now on top of what was Tiawanako. Right. So you can't exactly go to their house and be like, hey, uh, you know what? We got to tear this down, eminent domain. We right. need to see who lived here 4,000 years ago. You know, people are living there. They're, they're having their lives. So it's like, it gets really hard to excavate right. a continuously or not necessarily continuously occupied, right. but at right. this moment occupied site like that where life has been taking place off and on for possibly thousands and thousands of years. So It's funny you mention that. Speaking of which, uh, traditions carry on in the sites as they did thousands of years ago. Check this out. So now this is from a Smithsonian Mag article titled, Meet the Celebrity Skulls of Bolivia's Fiesta de las Yatitas by Rachel mm. Neuer. This was published in November 17th, 2015. So Check this out, Scott. Uh, Each November, the Aymara people honor their special bond with the helpful spirits of the deceased. I believe that is part of the subtitle here. So on November 8th, crowds gather at La Paz's General Cemetery to participate in the Fiesta de las Nyatitas. Nyatitas. Yes. And they arrive at the cemetery's church, and they bring offerings of flower petals, cigarettes, candy, and coca leaves. It's already turning into a party, see? Yeah. Well, they also bring human skulls. <laughs> so oh. the skulls, called nyatitas, which roughly translates to little pug-nosed ones, well, these are thought to bestow blessings on the people who care for them. The festival de las nyatitas usually takes place the week after All Saints and All Souls Day and takes place in graveyards across the country where the skulls are brought out from people's private shrines. The bears give gratitude to the skulls and celebrate the special bond between them. So again, we're also seeing here the melding of Western Christian traditions and ancient, more pagan traditions. One of the commenters in the uh, article here, an art historian who has documented the Nyatitas in his book, Memento Mori, The Dead Among Us, Paul Kudinaris, says people are not coming to gawk. And he's been attending the festival since 2007. Quote, he says, they are either coming with their own skull or else coming to make offerings to someone else's skull. So they feel blessed. So quick correction here. A lot of people may think this is similar to the Day of the Dead festival in Mexico, but it isn't. It's not about coping with the inevitability of death, like a memento mori, or honoring past loved ones. This is about uh, the fact that most of the skulls the people bring forth aren't even family members. They're strangers. (laughs) 
Some of these skulls are century-old heirlooms. Some are procured from archaeological sites, which is not great, but well, there you go. Uh, some come from local cemeteries. The cemeteries don't sell their plots to be kept by families forever. Think about that. So there's a high turnover of bones. The skulls, though, that have their tops cut off usually come from medical schools. So this is like Kramer on Seinfeld explaining the uh, certified mail. All nyatitas are skulls, Kudinaris points out, but not all skulls are nyatitas. But the difference here is the relationship between the person who's alive, who owns the skull, and the skull itself. And a good relationship is not a guarantee. You may have a, a very snotty skull. And get this, everyone has a personality, he says, and in some cases, it may not be a good fit between the person and their skull that they own, uh, Kudinara says. Uh, people will say, I got this skull from my cousin who didn't get along with it, but I'm getting along with it pretty well. It just so happens that I have a copy of Paul Kudinara's book, and I bought it when it came out, yeah. because it's called Memento Mori, which, as he said, is actually not connected to this particular festival. But I'm going to open it up here. It's a very, it's a very mm -hmm. big book, and it's primarily centered around photography. The photography in it is unbelievable. It's printed on really nice paper, and his photographs are the main draw to it. But right. he does talk about this stuff that uh, Forrest was just reading. Those are quotes from the book here. There's some, I, I did want to read some of these sections here. He says, uh, Nyatitas may provide any number of services as guardians of the domicile, trusted advisors, spiritual guides, or simply good luck charms. The roots of the practice can be traced to longstanding indigenous beliefs concerning the interaction between the living and the dead. Mm -hmm. For the Amara Indians of the Bolivian highlands, death was never a fatalistic concept. Those who passed on had simply transcended to another phase of life and could still function within the family or social group. Yeah. Individual nyatitas believed to exercise different powers. Skulls may specialize in anything from domestic problems to schoolwork or medical issues, mm -hmm. and residents of the neighborhood can visit such a home in order to seek appropriate assistance. And okay, these photos are just unbelievable. I won't be able to reproduce them uh, no, because they're from they're in the book and they're copyrighted. But if you can find this, if you look up Memento Mori by Paul Kudinaris online, and that's K-O-U-D-O-U-N-A-R-I-S, you'll find some of this photography is really fascinating. If you can't get there yourself. And we'll have a link to this article so you can see the photos that are attached with the article itself. Yeah, in fact, this is so well ensconced. He talks about a pair of skulls that are enshrined in the homicide division of the National Law Enforcement Agency wow. in El Alto. They're named Juanito and Juanita. The latter, it says, has been with the unit for three decades, while the former's tenure is so long, no one is sure when he arrived. <laughs> Some claim he may have been with the local police for a century, and he has affectionately been called the longest-serving officer on the force. <laughs> right. By providing assistance to detectives in the form of clues to difficult cases, the skulls have been credited with helping to solve hundreds of crimes. Oh. They are similarly dressed in knitted caps and wide-band sunglasses, and there's pictures of them here in the book. Traditional veneration involves officers saying prayers in their honor and writing requests for information on slips of paper that are placed in their shrines. In return for their services, the pair is provided with gifts and offerings, which commonly include, as Forrest said earlier, cocoa leaves, cigarette, uh, in this case, votive candles and candy as well. They have also been used in interrogation, since it is believed that it would be impossible to lie in their presence. Wow. I love it, too. There's a large picture of um, some women in church here, clearly like in a church pew or something, and they have skulls in their laps, wearing hats or bands yeah, of yeah. flowers, mm -hmm. cotton in the eye sockets. Or uh, in some cases, there's one pictured here. It has a Harley Davidson hat on and some uh, pretty contemporary-looking glasses. So yeah. I think they decorate them in modern, more up-to-date stuff. 
Oh, yeah. Some are bedazzled. Uh, some are painted. They're very decorative. They're kind of cool. You may think of having one, except that it's an actual dead person's skull. It's not the, the ceramic fun stuff you get at the store of the painted skull for Day of the Dead. This is the real deal. Yeah, and they're, I mean, they have some in here that are have cig- lit cigarettes in their mouths, I guess, during the festival. Yeah, it doesn't do any good to have a non-lit cigarette. <laughs> but I just want to read this last section, and we'll move on from this, but this is on page 182 of Kudinaris' book. Yeah. The use of skulls for religious or magical purposes dates back to pre-Columbian times mm-hmm. in the Bolivian highlands, where crania were, among other things, believed to have curative powers and aid in weather control and agricultural fertility. Catholicism was imposed by the Spanish, but rather than being eradicated, local ideas about the role of the dead in society instead adapted and evolved. This is what I was talking about earlier when you were mentioning the the combination of rituals here. The church officially disavows any connection to the skulls, but in fact, the foundation of the contemporary fiesta is a complex syncretism between the Catholic cult of the dead and indigenous beliefs. While the Western world may have turned its back on such practices long ago, the veneration offered to the Nyatitas testifies to the vital connection that is possible between the living and the dead. Yes, yeah. All right, hang on. Here comes a book close. I like that. Very final. Uh, But to get back to your point about fertility and farmers, there's a relationship between the skulls and the spirits of the dead people and the living And yes, this has been practiced for centuries and originates with the Altiplano Aboriginal peoples of the Andes, the Aymara. And as you said, the Aymara believe that there is a just a a slight transition between living and the dead, and it's a very thin veil. So, but talking about what's important to them, yes, the skulls can have an association with fertility, luck, and protection. And talking about farmers. Get ready, folks. This is the adult uh, warning part here. I'm just going to read from this. So don't blame me. <laughs> this is what... This is from the article. This is from right? the article, yeah. yes. It's so yeah. uh, these are vessels housing the souls of their former living residents here. Farmers used to bury skulls in their fields prior to planting, and accounts written as recently as 1918 describe sexual orgies that took place following rituals carried out with human craniums. Hmm. So party down. Come on, you got the cigarettes, you got the Coke, you got the yeah. skulls, you got dancing parties. Yes, it's a big party here. Coca-Cola. Ex- exactly, to, to right. To make that clear. Right. Yeah. Well, anyway, as you're right, after the Spanish arrived in Bolivia in the 15th century, they were they were trying to eliminate these types of traditions and trying to force the people to convert to Christianity. And they didn't really care for the magic with the skulls and uh, people were put on trial for witchcraft and necromancy. So that whole practice went underground for a long time. And it wasn't until the 1970s when indigenous farmers began moving into La Paz to seek work. So now you have country folk bringing the practice back in a more public way. And as the article says, since that time, the fiesta has been growing in scale with 5,000 to 10,000 people participating in La Paz alone in recent years. So that's kind of the central party place here. Uh, The General Cemetery that we mentioned earlier, you can have up to 12,000 people showing up and they kind of come and go throughout the day. And after sunset though, parties that are called prestas break out in the halls and salons nearby. And there's a woman, of course, she's the, the party maven here, Doña Ana. She has more than a dozen yetitas, and her parties attract crowds of several hundred. And so and she makes uh, these beautifully printed and embossed cards to go uh, with the invitations, and they have the pictures of the skulls on them. And 
Food Network says that, yeah, I think her parties are the biggest here. I remember a couple of years ago, all the skulls were given ham sandwiches. It was a bizarre touch. Uh, so there you go. They can aid in business, uh, aid with the police, as you said. One of the final quotes here I'll say is that uh, from the article, it says, regardless of where they're housed, Yetitas are very much considered vibrant participants in the affairs of the living. Josue Gonzalez, another festival goer, had four Yetitas for more than a decade, inherited from his grandparents. As he told Zapana, they're like my sisters. I think you might have read that part. I can't remember where the one guy in, it's, in his book, it says, uh, I, oh yeah, here it is. Mm -hmm. I got this skull from my cousin who didn't get along with it, but I'm getting along <laughs> yeah. with it very well. Yeah, it's like so. people, you know what I'm saying? There's no guarantee. Uh, or or like a therapist. It's like, you know, yeah. you don't always click with somebody, you know. Well, <laughs> let's continue on here, though, talking about the Tibunaku religion, because this is all tying in with the spiritual aspect of this. And again, the why of why this was all built. Recently, I found a pretty cool article here on Nat Geo about an underwater excavation of Titicaca. And again, this just paints the big picture of what's going on here, what they believed, why these things were important and why you might need a very grand place to display it all, and the reason for that. And sometimes it comes down to power, sometimes it's uh, spiritual dominance and cultural dominance in the region. So, so what was discovered at the bottom of Lake Titicaca here were hints of a mysterious religion, the Tiwanaku religion, and discovered in the world's highest lake here, things like gold artifacts, precious shells, and evidence of animal sacrifice in Lake Titicaca point to a belief system that helped organize the ancient Tiwanaku state, researchers claim. And I believe that was all part of the byline of the title here. But anyway, this article is written by Aaron Blakemore, published April 1st, 2019. In 2013, underwater archaeologists unearthed a about a 1,200-year-old cache of precious artifacts near the Koa Reef, and that's K-H-O-A Reef, in the middle of Lake Titicaca. Now, this reef was located near the Island of the Sun, and where it's thought that multiple Tiwanaku sacred sites were stationed. So just a little side before I want you to uh, give us a refresher, Scott, on the Island of the Sun. I was also reminded, making other connections, we talked about this a little bit in part one, or I did here. Uh, hiding precious valuables by dumping them in a lake is, I believe, what also the, the Celts did. And it was also a way for them to have some kind of communion with sacred water. If I remember correctly, from my Great Courses Plus uh, course on the Celts. By the way, you got a lot of territory when you're auctioning off a lake. <laughs> yeah, there's a, well, you go hey, you know what? What's going yeah. on? What are we doing with that? That <laughs> thing over there. What do you mean that thing? Oh, that lake? Yeah, let's just sell it to the highest bidder. Yeah, right. I got it. We got to, we got to get out of here. That was the hope, though, is that you drain the lake or, or search the lake, and it's got some Celtic treasures in there that they threw in there as, a, again, a way of hiding them, keeping them. You always know where it is. It's in the lake. It's in the lake, but it's also a spiritual connection to... It's an offering. Yes, to water, yeah. the spirit of water, you could say. So yes. I just want to read this. This is from a comment on Part 1's episode website page here from listener Sean Ferguson. And he says, great episode. I uh, could listen for five more hours chasing the historical and archaeological roots of this story with you. 29 years ago, I entered university and enrolled in the archaeology program, and my main interest was monumental architecture and cultural-slash-ritual practice in both Mesoamerica. It was so interesting to hear Celtic culture raised in the episode because I wrote an undergrad paper doing a comparative analysis with ritual sites of Mayan culture and society and Celtic counterparts. Uh, while there are very specific forms, each expressed, and unique styles of art— I was staggered by the underlying commonality between two disparate groups across both time and space. 
I think we, in the modern era, take for granted how much ancient ways have actually influenced our current state and how there are very shocking similarities once one shrugs off the bias of our temporal experience. Looking forward to part two and hope there is room to revisit these kinds of topics. Fantastic effort on the part of the art. Cheers! This is sums up everything I was talking about. There's a through line between these disparate types of people. I'm not nuts for making a connection between the Celts and the, and the Tiwunaku people and their cultures. There are echoes. It may not be exactly the same, but things rhyme. So the article continues on saying that uh, six years after that, finally researchers, uh, they think they may know what those objects like gold and metal ornaments, uh, semi-precious stones and incense burners, they think they may know what the objects represent. Now, one of the takeaways for me that the article explained was that the religion of the Tiwunaku and not their military might was what made them and their culture the dominant force in the region. Usually it's military might. We come in, we uh, we beat everybody up, we take prisoners, you're going to get down with our culture or else, and that's the way it is. Or you get conscripted into the army. Here, it was the fact that their religion, I think because they made such a display with their precious artifacts, the impressive architecture, that people were on board with it. You know, it's like, you, you get there, it's like, wow, okay, these guys know what they're doing, seems like, and they have maybe technology that uh, is impressive, so we'll give this a listen. Yeah, I have some thoughts on that, but I'm going to save those for later. Okay. I, th I do want to come back to the Island of the yes. Sun, though. Uh, this is pretty cool, the Isla del Sol, which uh, you asked me to drill down on a little bit, and I wanted to because it's, by the local cultures, it's thought of as the origin point. Yeah. The Axis Mundi, talking about uh, spiritual mundi, mundi and, and knowledge in the, the band of thought encircling the earth. These folks believe that this could be the birthplace of everything. Yeah, you know, my wife Emily read a book a while back that she tried to get me to read, and I hadn't had time because we're always reading other books. So was, <laughs> but yeah. it was called At Home by uh, Bill Bryson. It was a bestseller, I believe. But it's one of the things he talks about is how these things work down through culture. I, I don't think he goes as far back as we're talking yeah. here, but he does go back. You know, he talks about the origins of like the chairman of the board and these phrases right. and what they where they really came from. And I think it is interesting. You don't think about it that much, but like to the point of Sean who wrote in here, think about like when you toss uh, change into yeah. a fountain. That could go all the way back to this. It could go all the way back to this. Oh yeah, that's absolutely right. Think about it. Right, it's an offering to water. Uh, unless you're a small child, you're probably not going to reach down in there <laughs> to right. scoop up the coins. And uh, it's like making a, why do we do it? We make a wish. It's a little bit of tithing yeah. to the uh, the fortune gods. But just like now in humanity, probably every now and then somebody or some government that's down on its luck comes along and cleans out the bottom of the fountain. <laughs> well, somebody does, especially in a business. I've actually seen that happen to the guy who has to, well, he's got to clean the water, right? Because it'll get all algae. When you tour the USS North Carolina down in Wilmington, there's mm -hmm. a point in there when you're below deck where there's a grating that people throw money into and it goes down like five decks. I can't remember what it is because originally it was like a, a chute for bringing up ammunition or something. Right. And so they've right. got a grill over it and you look down the bottom, there's got to be a couple thousand dollars down there, but you would throw your, your coins down in there. Yeah. So taking a little bit here from BolivianLife.com, I like to go to the source. This, mm -hmm. I'd like to believe this website emanates from a computer sitting right on top of Isla del Sol, but I don't know that for sure. Uh. Isla del Sol is 5.5 square miles, and today it has about 800 families living on it, doing some awesome farming, some amazing fishing, and they support the 
really fascinating tourism. But there's a section here that really sums up from a local perspective, the idea of Isla del Sol. According to Incan lore, Isla del Sol, Island of the Sun, is both the birthplace of their revered sun god and the world's first two Incas. Mm. Story has it that following a great flood, the province of Lake Titicaca was plunged into a long period of darkness. After many days, the bearded god Viracocha arose from the depths of Lake Titicaca, traveling to Isla del Sol, where he not only commanded the sun to rise, but created the world's first two Incas. Uh, people of Bolivia, please forgive me if I mess these names up. Manco Capac and Mama Okyo, the Adam and Eve of the Andes. Very cool. That was, that's yeah. right from their website, by the way. I didn't say that. They said that. While the story is indeed dramatic, it's fair to say that the Incas didn't actually originate on the shores of Lake Titicaca. A more realistic version is that in the mid-15th century, the Incas invaded the island wrestling control from the rulers of the time and created the story in an attempt to not only justify their reign, but to identify themselves with the pre-existing Tiwanaku civilization whom they considered to be a great source of religious and ideological identity. What if all, all these indigenous cultures, their origin stories, their origin myths were absolutely true and they just happened to, uh, in, in some realm of existence, that's exactly right. Uh, you know where the, that came up is in David Weatherly's book talking about Native American beliefs, and I think some, uh, which ties in with Middle Eastern beliefs of there were a society or consciousness of people that uh, were rulers, and they got fed up with humans, like, you guys suck, we're going into the mountain. <laughs> and then right. they went to the mountain for a long time into their realm or Middle Earth, and then it's like, now they're kind of coming out, and they're not happy. Yeah. And that's why you're getting some strange intruders, see? But you hear that, and then something weird happens to you that is uh, mythical like this, or an experiencer, or somebody who has a story that, that they really saw this. Now, whether it was just in their head, it's an actual otherworldly creature, but we've heard all kinds of crazy things and people seeing the strangest creatures. Then you listen to this, it's like, I don't know, not, not really all that much stranger. <laughs> It's just <laughs> like, I get, perhaps that's actually what uh, some of the first peoples in their culture saw. When you look for the stories in some of this, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what um, some of the elders say about the origin stories for the Amara people and the history and Viracocha, who was their god, and the first two Incans, they talk about the Great Flood, which obviously right, right. pervades nearly every culture on earth that we have historical information on. Also, there's a period of darkness. And then after the darkness, the first two Incas are created. This god, Viracocha, comes up right. and the first two Incas are created. Think about that series of events. Think about the Great Flood possibly right. having been caused by a catastrophic impact to the a, planet. A meteor which sends up particles in the atmosphere. Right. Three days of darkness or three weeks of darkness or three months of darkness. Right, depending on the size of it. A lot of big animals die off. Some mammals survive. Right. And so then the clouds part, and maybe some guy is out on Isla del Sol, he's fishing, whatever, and the sun comes out, and everybody looks over and sees him standing there. He looks really majestic. His shadow is like, <laughs> boom, he's Viracocha. You know, so, I mean, I'm not saying, could have no, been no, a no. divine thing. I'm just saying, right place, right time, the birth of the Inca, this yeah. resurrection, it's seasonal. We've gone from the winter to the spring. It's uh, an amazing time now. This horrible thing has happened. But here's the other thing that's really yeah. fascinating about this is this flood, this idea of this flood could have something to do 
with Puma Punku. Right, right. So getting back to Isla del Sol, here's another little piece of information from uh, Britannica.com. There's a ruin there known as the Inca's Palace or Pilcocema. It's a two-story, 50 by 43 foot building and was probably built between 1471 and 1493, which was the reign of Incan emperor Topa Inca Yupanqui, and he is thought to have possibly lived there. Now, Marissa Ball, who is one of our researchers in the Astonishing Research Corps, uh, has been with us for many, many years and I believe works at the Library of Congress. Am I, am I allowed to say that? I think so. I think so. It's pretty awesome. Librarian researcher, yeah, all around uh, powerhouse, yes. Yes, it's true powerhouse. She found this really fascinating contemporary story about the Island of the Sun. Well, it seems like, as we said, it might be ground zero for all of the cultures in the area. And this comes from a Sunday Times cover story on July 23rd of 2006 by Hugh Thompson. The Times is out of London, and the article is extracted from Mr. Thompson's book, Cochineal Red, Travels Through Ancient Peru. Let's remind everyone, all of this stuff is at 12,500 feet. Mm -hmm. It's a little less than half the height of Everest. And in his article, Thompson talks about how beautiful the air is there. He writes that it was clear that the Incans wanted to control the experience that pilgrims had to the island. Listen to this excerpt from the article, which is in turn from his book. Quote, I tried to imagine the intoxication of grace that pilgrims must have felt on arriving. Pan-Andean belief held that this was where both the sun and moon had first emerged from the earth. To be able to look from one birthplace to another as they gazed over the waters fulfilled all of the conditions of reciprocity that satisfied the Andean mind. Hidden on the other side of the island of the moon was a substantial temple for the mysterious rites of female celebrants. Mysterious because the distaff side of Inca religion was relatively unrecorded. Even the Inca emperor was said by Kobo, and that's uh, Padre Kobo, which that's I'll right. talk about in a yeah. second, to be unsure what they did. So the, the women over on the island of the moon, mm -hmm. they had their own place where they did rituals that even the emperor didn't know what was going on. Well, yeah, you don't want no dudes allowed. Here's yeah, the thing. No dudes this allowed. is <laughs> Yaya Mama culture. This is what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, in part one is that's the origin, the duality of male, female, sun, moon, earth, water. It, yes. uh, it sums up everything. And then, of course, with that duality, that is the Axis Mundi, the birthplace of the world. That's an origin story for them, but maybe it's just an origin after a catastrophic event. Right. Because that's a, a new chapter. It's thought that a pilgrimage here could have been as significant as Mecca is to Muslims. Yeah. Pilgrims would have to ask questions along the way to see if they should be allowed to go further. All trying to get to the sacred rock, which had a large piece of fine cloth with writing on it. We're not sure what was on it. Mm -hmm. now, some would be allowed to get closer, close enough to read it. Some would be stopped and they would have to view it from a distance. Yeah. The final destination was to get all the way to it and on the backside of it, uh, which was lined with gold and silver, and this is the back of the temple itself, you would leave yeah. offerings. Huh. It was a very specific experience. If I understand this correctly, and I may have made some errors here, so reach out and correct us if you'd like to, and we'll put it in the next episode, but I'm trying to distill this information about what this pilgrimage was like. Although the Inca were, after the folks that created Pumapunku, a lot of these rituals were rooted in the cultures that came before them, which, and it's hard to figure out how and why, because there's thought to have been a gap of occupation. Mm -hmm. So... I'm not fully clear on that uh, from a sociological perspective, how some of the traditions made it from the dead culture to the next culture that came along, other than it, it went out and it spread, uh, you know, through the diaspora into the mountains and the hills, and somehow right. it worked its way down to the cultures that came back to the area later. So mm -hmm. anyway, 
That's what I have to say about the Island of the Sun. It all ties in and, and again, paints that big picture here because you start to understand what they believe, perhaps, and why this was important and, and the methods that they went through. And what you're talking about is part of that experience, trying to create that experience for the worshiper or the newly uh, arrived who may have heard about this. It's like, hey, what is all this uh, Tiwanaku religion I've been hearing about? It's like, well, come with us. We're going to actually show you exactly what's going to happen here, and you will be converted. So speaking of that, though, there's a paper published April 1st, 2019, in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and this is by Christophe Delaire. I think it's uh, D-E-L-A-E-R-E, Delaire, maybe, but also Jose M. Capriles, and Charles Stanish. Charles Stanish, that name's going to come up a bit. Yeah, I recognize his name already. These are all heavyweights here, but listen, their paper, they explain the significance of their research here as, quote, ritual and religion are significant factors in primary or archaic state formation. These beliefs and practices not only legitimize these new political organizations in their ability to control supernatural forces, it's important. You've got to be able to control the heavens, yeah. but also incentivize intra-group cooperation by punishing freeloading and rewarding cooperative behavior. That's important. You can't be goofing around. So this is a definition of religion, punish freeloading and reward cooperative behavior. Yeah. Look, nobody likes a freeloader. Okay. Look, we, right. we've been working really hard to grow the crops and harvest them. You're just sitting there eating corn on the cob, kicking back, and we're all sweating out here. So that's right. get with the program, buddy. Anyway, so uh, continuing on, recent archaeological excavations from an underwater ceremonial location near the Island of the Sun in Lake Titicaca, there you go, have revealed the remarkable constituent elements of repetitive rituals practiced by the Tiwanaku state between the 8th and 10th centuries CE. Evidence of animal sacrifice, high-value offerings of vessels, gold, shells, and lapidary stones on a strategically located reef illustrates how power was consolidated in one of the earliest Andean states. Again, this is the uh, significance paragraph here from the paper that the Smithsonian article is drawing from. Religion and these artifacts and the veneration practices are really what's making the cohesive cooperation exist. Much like, again, Gobekli Tepe and the monuments, and like, let's all get together, put down the spears for a second, now we're going to need grain. Let's do that. But this is important. Let's all work on this together. It brings people together. So here's the abstract from the paper. Considerable debate surrounds the economic, political, and ideological systems that constitute primary state formation. Theoretical and empirical research emphasize the role of religion as a significant institution for promoting the consolidation and reproduction of archaic states. The Tiwunaku state, developed in the Lake Titicaca Basin between the 5th and 12th century CE, and extended its influence over much of South Central Andes of South America. We report on recent discoveries from the first systematic underwater archaeological excavations in the Coa Reef near the Island of the Sun, Bolivia. The depositional context and compositional properties of offerings consisting of ceramic feline incense burners, killed juvenile llamas, and Sumptuary metal, shell, and lapidary ornaments allow us to reconstruct the structure and significance of cyclically repeated state rituals. Using new theoretical tools, we explain the role of these rituals in promoting the consolidation of the Tiwanaku polity. So again, these are tools. It's a very helpful framework where you're not using military might or force. You're getting people to come together for a belief. 
And also, they're that impressed when they see this that they want to be a part of it. It's a method of control, not necessarily nefarious, but right. I, this could be the beginning of, I don't know, this could be the beginning of, of developing a structure for classes and yeah. control of the people. And so the, the elites have the knowledge and... Yes. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Well, the, it, well, no, you're right. It's always yeah. uh, the rulers and the priests. And it's the same thing uh, we learned with uh, Egyptology is that the priests, well, another wondering, of course, on Egypt, uh, has been around for a long time. You know, you have different roles of the priests is that they control the magic. They divine the message from the gods. They're the intermediary. This is in, in ancient Egyptian culture. And you need them. That's why they're very powerful. We need a conduit between us and the spirit world and that power that resides with the gods and them. They could uh, be the conduit. They also practice the magic. They had a little, uh, they had, they knew all the rights. They're very important people and powerful in the society. But couldn't magic also be knowledge of technology that is beyond the scope of the yes. layman to understand? Absolutely. I'm Sarah, and when I'm not researching the Ada Witch or other creepy legends from my home state of Michigan, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, let's get back to the show. So let's continue on here. There's some other interesting finds. Uh, the Tiwanaku State, as the article says, existed between 500 CE and about 1000 CE, extending into modern-day Chile and Peru at its height. But they didn't really leave behind much trace of any formidable army, as we've said. But they seem to have amassed influence from religion and trade. Trade is another big aspect of this. Archaeologists have some evidence of Tiwanaku religious beliefs, but they're still piecing together the meanings behind their religion through the artifacts and, and how that may have contributed to the expansion of their society. Uh, so some of the artifacts, as we said, two that are interesting is uh, two gold medallions that were that represent a deity with rays emanating from its head, maybe like what's found at the top of the Gate of the Sun. That's just my own thought here, uh, because uh, as you remember, we were saying that Dr. Barnhart thought the rays, they weren't sun rays, they were snakes. I agree with Barnhart there. Yeah. And you do too, I guess, right? Yeah, because if you look at them closely, the rays are bulbous, like a snake's head on the end, okay? so Yeah. Also what was found were metal plaques that show a, a mythical puma-llama hybrid creature. There you go. You got your cryptids, bones, and remains of at least three young sacrificed llamas were found as well. Now, the Inca were known to sacrifice a lot of llamas for their ceremonies as well, for good luck, offerings to the gods, divination, all the classic purposes. One of the paper's authors, anthropologist and assistant professor of anthropology at Penn State University, Jose M. Capriles, thought that the findings of the five items made from spondylus shells, with one complete shell being found, was really quite surprising. Now, this is what a spondylus is. This is just from Wikipedia. It's a genus of bivalve mollusks, uh, the only genus in the family Spondylidae. They are known in English as spiny oysters, although they're not, in fact, true oysters. <laughs> I had to look them up. I'm looking right now. I was like, wait, what is that? And yeah, I've, I've seen these shells, but very rarely. Right, right. Yeah. Well, there are many species of them. They vary considerably in appearance, but they're grouped to the same super family as the scallops, which I find delicious. So <laughs> check this out. I also found this as a sign connection here. This is also comes from the, the, the wiki entry on Chavin de Huantar that we talked about in part one about an engraved image at the new temple. The quote-unquote new temple constructed between 500 and 200 BCE 
is also based on a gallery and plaza design and contain many relief sculptures. The Lanzon deity is shown here holding a strombus shell in the right hand, while the left hand holds a spondylus shell considered to have sacred properties. This is a very sacred shell. It's a magical shell to them, okay? The spondylus were very important in early Andean cultures, but they aren't native to Lake Titicaca, just to the Pacific Ocean. Okay, and the strombus shell, for people that don't know, because I had to look that up, it looks like a conch shell. Yeah. So we got the conch on one side and the, and the spiny mollusk on the other side. Right. Interesting. Now, here's yeah. the deal. So the fact that the shells come from over 1,200 miles away from their nearest habitat speaks to both the power and the value of the shells and of Tiwanaku's trading power. Okay, so they're getting goods coming in from a long ways away. And Capriles views the fact that such valued items were used as sacrifices showed that the Tiwanaku worshippers showed a commitment to their new religious traditions. These customs helped create a religious tradition that helped the Tiwanaku culture flourish. I mean, I'm sorry, but this is like... Check this out. I this came from that. Isn't this amazing? Doesn't it look amazing? And there's yeah. like, yep, it's really amusing. Throw it in. Throw it in the water. <laughs> well, no, it goes into a, probably a little shrine there on the island. Oh yeah, know? put it yeah. on the shrine. Put it on the shelf. Get out of here. You have to give up your gold coins. You put you stash them somewhere. You don't get to hang on to them. You don't get yeah. to coin jingle them while you're yelling your friends. Don't with make stories. us invent the tax man. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> so so this again, this is creating a religious culture and tradition which allowed their society to flourish here. And so Caprilis says, these customs are huge in terms of building societies. These deities that people are creating are becoming institutions that govern behavior. Now listen to this. This is right from the article. That new religion set the groundwork for moral and behavioral norms. Quote, if you behave well, you are immortal, says Caprilis. But if you're bad, you are going to get punished by the chief's deity, end quote. So it also meant that people could move from place to place Secure in the knowledge that their shared beliefs would keep them from being perceived as outsiders. That's also important. You share something. It's like you uh, you go down to the deep south and you're also Baptist. Maybe that gets you uh, a little nicer treatment, maybe. Who knows? Yeah. Right. People feel a kinship right. there. So uh, Paul Goldstein, an archaeologist in the Department of Anthropology at UC San Diego, says, quote, The Tiwanaku is the greatest Native American empire that many Americans have never heard of. I love that statement there. Going on, uh, every time we find something that reflects the complexity of the society, it adds to our deeper knowledge of the origins of complex societies worldwide. That's why it's important. Continuing on with the quote, at its height, the society had amassed significant political influence, economic power, and cultural cachet. But after its collapse around 1000 AD, it was overshadowed by the cultures that came after it, end quote. You're only as good as your last picture. <laughs> right. These so other the, folks, the they movie, really old tiny Hollywood yeah. thing. You're yeah. only as good as your last movie. You're only oh, you're, as good as your yeah. last significantly developed ancient society. Right. Or, or as Kramer <laughs> says on Se my second Seinfeld quote of the night, when he's, he's taking notes of guys uh, showering because he, he felt he couldn't get it right. He's like, uh, oh, I'm watching you, Philip, but this guy's really showing me something. And then he <laughs> gets punched. Uh, but speaking of like just regular folks, Jose M. Capriles, ends the article with this quote, they were just grateful. They made offerings, he says. They were just people like you and me. And Hey, we've all thrown a coin in a fountain. Yeah, right? well, circling we've back, there's people still uh, decorating skulls. and Which must, well, yeah, and might I add, with much less promise in your future. Usually when you're throwing a coin in a fountain, there's a pickpocket taking something out of your back pocket right. or your backpack. So. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is These true. days. 
Okay, let's talk a little bit about what the site was designed to do mm-hmm. here, now that we're this far into part two of the series. Yes. <laughs> I think we've mentioned this a little bit before, but it, it, the idea of what the site was, because it's a fascinating site. How was it built? What happened to it? Where did the people go? But also, what was the goal of this? Right. Marissa, uh, who we mentioned earlier, and Testa dug up some great academic articles on the possible meaning behind the monumental structure which everyone saw when they got to Pumapunku. It was a very spellbinding building, I'm sure. So in this paper, we're actually going to talk about who I think we brought him up before, Alexei Vranich or, or Vranich, V-R-A-N-I-C-H. Yes, we talked about him in part one, right. So uh, yes. actually two papers. One was when he was a grad student, I believe, and then one That's when right. he's actually out in the field. But he is one of the preeminent uh, researchers of the of the area and the site specifically. So Alexei Vranich from the University of uh, Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology in Philadelphia. Yes. Now that we've talked about him so much, someone might forward it to him, and I hope that we get a nice email. He's going to get get out his red pen and... and, uh, We don't screw anything up, yeah. You you get a D plus. How's that? Yes, but I I do want to read the abstract from this uh, particular paper that that the research corps found in Tess and uh, Marissa, specifically, I think, on this one. Investigations carried out in 1996 and 2000 through 2002 at the Pumapunku Temple Complex at Tiwanaku, Bolivia... 500 to 950 AD, according to the abstract, combined historical research, data recovered from previously unpublished excavations, strategically placed small-scale trenches, and three-dimensional architectural and stratigraphic recordings. The construction, use, and subsequent modifications, substantial and ephemeral to the temple complex, span 500 years. This period the apogee of the Tiwanaku phenomenon, provides a theoretical case study of the role monumentality can play in the development of an archaic state. The Pumapunku Temple Complex facilitated movement of large throngs of pilgrims. It served both as a ritual gateway to the city and as a theater for projecting a redundant and widely comprehensible message to arriving visitors through the use of facades and intentional alignments of sacred features. It's the Hall of Presidents at Disneyland. It is. This is what's amazing <laughs> right. to me about this. It, it's like an amusement park, right? Yeah. Is this, speaking of those things that we don't even know we're still doing from ancient humanity, yeah. is this what an amusement park ride is? Or, or like a small world. Maybe we've all been, it's the, yes. you're on a little boat, uh, you go through, it's Pirates of the Caribbean, it's a little display, but you're, you're um, meant to be uh, wowed. And that's what the deal is walking through it. But again, uh, and I'm going to try to wrap up my mentions of a Gobekli Tepe, is that you are meant to walk through processionally and see things through small peepholes. It could be some celestial viewings. You're supposed to gather meaning of this. And the meaning is the creation and looks to the questions and answers of why are we here and what are we supposed to do? Right. And I want to make some more observations about that. I, mean, I, want, to, I want to move on to an abstract from another paper by Vranich. Mm-hmm. And uh, this one is called Interpreting the Meaning of Ritual Spaces, the Temple Complex of Pumapunku, Tiwanaku, Bolivia. The built environment embodies symbolic messages and helps transform human activity into meaningful experience. And I highlighted this section because I mm-hmm. want to talk about this. Anthropological archaeologists often study buildings from a materialist perspective, examining their functions the labor investment they required, or their role in the political economy. They generally ignore important symbolic and phenomenological aspects of the built environment. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, did you put in this? 
from the forest? Yeah, oh, nice. Just, the just definition of phenomenology. Yeah, yes, I like this. I didn't remember this being in here, but that's because we work together on these outlines. That's Thank right. You. Definition of phenomenology. Number one, the study of the development of human consciousness and self-awareness as a preface to or a part of philosophy. Or a philosophical movement that describes the formal structures of the objects of awareness and of awareness itself in yeah. abstraction from any claims concerning existence. So uh, there's some other definitions here, but it's it says it's known through the senses rather than through thought or intuition. Right. Concerned with phenomena rather than with hypotheses. Right. He's talking about archaeology as an archaeologist himself. He's, he's mm -hmm. saying a lot of times people are coming to this and they're just, and this is something that comes up when you look into Puma Punku specifically. These archaeologists are coming to sites and they're looking at them and they're evaluating them on a scientific level, which they should, but they're not getting outside of that. They're not getting right. into the heads of the people who were living there and into the culture and into, which in a lot of ways, I think was the much more prominent part of the experience. The structure, yeah. I think was ancillary to what was happening when you visited the structure. Yeah. You don't ride, it's a small world after all, and obsess right. over the animatronics, <laughs> well, right? You you come yeah. through and, oh, it's a small world, Dad, and look at all the cultures, you know? Yeah, so. you didn't hear, you know, archaeologists, uh, those robot ones from the Steven Spielberg's movie AI, 5,000 mm -hmm. years from now, they dig up uh, animatronic Abe Lincoln and... Or, or all those little kids uh, from all over the world. It's like they're not really hearing the music that played that you can't get out of your head now. Right. <laughs> it's a small world. Don't do it. Don't do it. That's the experience that they may have pieced together, but they're not actually there physically experiencing it. But that's also part of the phenomenology. It's a phenomenon. It's an experience. It's wondrous. And this is all part of that experience. And I think uh, if I'm not mistaken, this also may fall under post-processional archaeology, which is yes, you get in there and you try to immerse yourself in the possible experience of the thing you're digging up and dusting off. It's not just about broken pottery. It's not just about the buildings and putting them together. You're, you're trying to find meaning and relationships between uh, the experience of uh, the people that built this stuff and left it there and abandon it maybe, and the people nowadays that are digging it up. What's the point? What's the purpose of this? What can we learn from this? That's right. All right. Well, getting back to the paper from the journal here, uh, he goes on to say, this investigation addresses this lacuna through an examination of the temple complex of Pumapunku, one of the largest and most important ritual precincts in the pre-Columbian city of Tiwanaku. And I uh, I did have to look up lacuna, and I forgot what it meant. Uh, basically, it's a missing or blank space, a, a gap. So that's what he attempts to fill here. And he goes on to say, architectural analysis of data from detailed mapping and selective excavations shows that the Pumapunku complex is an extensive integrated compound consisting of platforms, buildings, plazas, courtyards, and stairways measuring a half kilometer a little less than a third of a mile in length. Although this complex was modified several times, its formal plan remained unchanged. Two interpretive approaches are used to understand the experience and meaning of the temple complex. The first is a phenomenological approach. The architectural spaces are interpreted from the point of view of a pilgrim walking through the complex, examining the physical and emotional reactions he or she might have experienced. 
And again, as we said before, uh, I don't know what's going up with those heads we talked about that are part of the uh, the tenons in the wall. Yes, they've uncovered 175 of them so far, I think, That's or right. as of a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. and then some uh, researchers believe they are representations of, uh, of ancestors, but the, the expressions are strange. They're grimaced. Some ancient alienists uh, will say they might represent uh, non-human forms because they're so weird looking. Yeah. I tend to think, though, that, uh, yeah, if you are on some kind of uh, psychoactive drug, as I said before in part one, uh, you could have a pretty freaky grimace on your face walking through that stuff. Well, right. And that was the point. That was part of the experience. Right. That's like the dog running around with the keys and uh, <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean. It's part of the experience. That's right. And again, that's what Vranich talks about here. He talks about, you know, the funneling of the people. Uh, just here, specifically, I'll quote this. The funneling of people across specially constructed architectural spaces and to display a series of symbolically important and ritually charged images and activities. The pilgrim was thus exposed to the cosmological meanings embedded in the architecture of the compound and indoctrinated into important aspects of Tiwanaku religion. The second interpretive approach is structuralist. A model of the axis mundi, as you had said before, is developed mm -hmm. based on historical and archaeological evidence of a specific architectural form used by the Inca. So what's happening here is... It's like the Matrix. You're getting jacked in on the way into town here. <laughs> right. These are all the things. First of all, take this. Don't worry. It's going to make you feel great. Now we're going right. to walk through here. We're going to expose you to how we do things around here. I hope yeah. you brought something to offer. By the way, you'll be answering a few questions. When you get to the end, depending on your answers to the questions, you might go this way. You might go over here. If we think you might be good for a sacrifice, you'll go to door 3B. If you're going to make it all the way through, hey, if you get all the way through here, tomorrow we can talk about going to Isla del Sol. Right. This is all conjecture, mind you. Yeah, yeah. But it makes sense based on what we know and what the, or what I should say, the archaeologists know who've done all this research. There's a lot of speculation embedded in this, but it does make sense when you mm -hmm. think about it. It was later that Vranich writes in the same paper, he mentions a festival architecture or, and he mentions uh, specifically a connection or a comparison to an amusement park. And I just want to say if he ever comes to hear this episode, I had that same thought before I got to that part where he suggested it. I did not steal that from him. I was like, it's like an amusement park. Yeah. And then literally you can see my notes in our document here. I was like, oh my God, I typed this right before I read where he yeah. said the same thing, which is a testament to how well he's conveying what the experience is like. Right. It also made me think about how this could be right up there with uh, the origins of theater, which of course, you know, that was already going, being developed in other parts of the world at the same time or earlier, but this is the same kind of thing. This is theater. You're being exposed. There may have been actors involved. And mm -hmm. while you're yeah. coming into, you're, you're seeing interactions. And that a lot of times is how they have thought that information was conveyed from the elites to the masses was through theatrical portrayals, which every now and then I think could still be how I look at these movies, these science fiction movies about the possible future yeah. And I think, wow, this is, and then later something happens and it's like, it's right out of the movie. Are they still doing that? <laughs> Are they feeding us what we need to know? Oh, maybe. Marissa Ball also pulled up uh, an interesting article from the Washington Post. Yeah. Foreign Service. This is from December 11th, 1990, entitled, uh, In Bolivia, Great Excavations, Tiwanaku Digs, Unearthing New History of the New World, the Washington Post. And these are some sections that she pulled out of that that uh, I think are worth sharing. This is written by Eugene Robinson, again, mm -hmm. of the Washington Post. Quote, we used to think of these relatively simple-minded peasants who had some artistic talents, Andrade said. 
Now we begin to think of a highly technological society that was very advanced in medicine, in metallurgy, and in agriculture. Yes. Another section excerpted, temples along the Peruvian coast, once thought to date to the period just before the birth of Christ, for example, are now believed to have been built 2,000 years earlier. When the Roman Empire was uh-huh. at its height around AD 100, a Peruvian civilization called Moche was producing some of the finest gold artifacts ever found in the New World. And then this is my favorite quote from the article. Quote, At a time when Europe's cities were fetid and full of disease, Tiwanaku's wealthier citizens enjoyed running water and an elaborate sewer system graded to modern tolerances. Mm. At its height between AD 400 and AD 1000, Tiwanaku was capital of an empire that covered an area roughly the size of California. There was apparently a distinct social and economic order. Holy men and elites lived in luxurious surroundings with brightly painted walls and friezes, skilled craftsmen in smaller homes, tradesmen and workers in dwellings that were humbler still. Much of the Tiwanaka stonework was dismantled after the Spaniards came and used to build churches, dwellings, even much later to build culverts for the railroad line that runs past the ruins. That which survives is stunningly precise. Yes, yeah, spolia. Remember we talked about that, uh, taking down of uh, using headstones to build your house and then getting haunted. You know, so. Yeah, and it's a tragedy to have all this stuff dismantled and repurposed and dismantled and repurposed, but they didn't do that. They weren't the first ones to do that. They were doing no. it themselves. Tiwanaku, right. their culture was doing that to whoever came before them, who came before right. them, whoever conquered, whoever was already on Isla del Sol, all of these things, everyone is taking, oh, well, you know, I want to build a house. That house they these guys built before I got here is weird. I don't know what they were doing with that, but <laughs> right. you know what? That would make a great wall. We're yeah. going to move it over here. We're going to do this and that and the other. And you see this today at Tiwanaku because we, we've been looking into this on online a lot, and you'll see some of the um, stonework yeah. Some of the stones, the andesite, the volcanic stone, is mixed with the sandstone. Right. And it seems like, huh, don't think that necessarily was the original goal. Seems more like it was built and taken apart and reassembled and or, or added onto over and over. And one of the things that Branich says in his paper is uh, that I didn't read in a section that we didn't read was that it was built in such a way that it seemed like they never intended to finish it. It was more so that it can continuously evolve. Just mm-hmm. We're just going to keep building this and changing it as needed to convey the evolving story, I guess. Well, look, it's like with the Gobekli Tepe. What I noticed, uh, again, well, what the archaeologists there excavating have noticed is that some sites, some of those pits and sunken circular plazas were filled in yeah. with rocks and garbage <laughs> of the time. Right. And as they were needed, they don't know, really know why. I remember that being a factor is that they, they weren't sure if they were just done with them, if they are done to, to be hidden and protected. For yeah. future generations, but it's always, there's always an evolution with these things. Yeah, as they needed it, it was always added on to, but also always in flux. It was always being uh, changed as needed. But a couple things here, the advances in metallurgy. We've talked about agriculture. I would just assume medicine because these folks seem to know what, what was going on with the local plants. But metallurgy was a big one. And there's evidence later on now of lead smelting and other metals and a complexity and an understanding that's sophisticated about metallurgy. And that's going to be part of the the how section here. So they had uh, these talents. And also it's like, I guess it's like living at, uh, remember the last time you were at the Americana or <laughs> one of the malls here? You know, it's a big arcade, there's shops and 
all kinds of commerce going on. And if you're rich, you can live in the penthouse uh, apartments that are above the shopping center. Not sure I would want to. Might be kind of fun. You walk down and get a Wetzel's pretzel. <laughs> you're above in the, the the plaza penthouse apartment dwellings for the wealthy. Down below are the shops. Regular folks are in apartment buildings 500 yards away. It's that similar thing where, yeah, the the rulers, the elite, the priests, they get to live in the nice apartments and everybody's got a pecking order. But there's a little bit of trade going on with everybody. So it seemed rather harmonious for a while. It certainly was for hundreds of years. And then the other thing I want you to note here, it may be a lot older than previously thought. Yeah. And one other quote I want to take away from the Washington Post article that I really liked was taken from a gentleman who at the time considered himself a sort of, I think, de facto caretaker or unofficial curator whose father had done the same thing. Listen to this quote, though. And this goes back to what Tom Barnett had said about the locals saying only 1% of it had been uncovered. This quote comes from Caesar Calasaya, a local resident and unofficial curator at the time of the Washington Post article in 1990. Quote, we know of places out there, entrances, that we don't tell the archaeologists about. For now, no. When we are sure they can be preserved, then we will tell. Mm. Yeah, I mean, who knows how many of the houses that are in the, occupy the area that used to be Tiwanaku that now, or, mm-hmm. or the original settlement, maybe they found something inside the house. They don't talk yeah. about it. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, like I said, I think there are many, many more discoveries to come. Yeah, uh, it just I may not see them in my lifetime. There was one other interesting article again by Vranich that mm-hmm. I believe Miss Marissa Ball found for us. Uh, it's called "Reconstructing Ancient Architecture at Tiwanaku, Bolivia: The Potential and Promise of 3D Printing." Oh yeah, yeah. This was pretty amazing. This came out in 2018, and this is where they took the ruins and they 3D printed uh, lots of the shapes up. And what's really cool about this mm-hmm. is, is it allows people to have a tactile experience with arranging them and rearranging them and and trying to figure out how they might have gone together. Right. Here's the abstract on it. I'm just going to read a section from it that I highlighted here. These measurements were entered by hand into an archaeological modeling program. The virtual form was subsequently printed in 3D form at a 4% reduced scale. Unlike large architectural pieces or notes or models on a computer screen, 3D printed pieces can be manipulated quickly and intuitively, allowing researchers to try combinations and seek connections rapidly, turning over pieces and testing possible fits. This tactile engagement, along with the ability to quickly try out combinations of the 3D printed pieces, led to fresh and often unexpected insights. Once refined and simplified, this methodology was demonstrated to the indigenous site managers who were provided with a full copy of the printed architectural fragments with a view to continuing research and to present the work to visitors, stakeholders, and other scholars. So what's really gripping about this is that once they got the model information, they're sharing that with everybody. Anybody can download it and print it out. And you can play around with Tiwanaku if you have a 3D uh, printer and try to figure out how you thought it went together or what you would do with it. I think that in particular, one of the things that's fascinating about this is if you come back to the stories told by the elders in the area, there is the idea that a giant came out of the lake and Mm -hmm. built the structures at the Isla del Sol. Yeah. When we print these 3D pieces out at 4% and start playing with them, we're the giants in this scenario. (laughs) Exactly, yes. So it's something uh, to think about it coming full circle. But also... Another thing that we saw in one of the videos we watched during our research forest uh, was uh, the Brian Forrester video. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
He's written a couple of books. He's yeah. written a couple of books, and you know, anytime we bring up any of these researchers, they're going to be polarizing for some people. Other people, well, yeah. So we're we're not endorsing or unendorsing anybody. We're just saying some observations he made, and he was on site talking about. There's a misconception about the H stones and how they're not right. all exactly the same. He yes. said they've all been measured and they're different. And not only that, the angles he said were not 90 degrees on the H stones. He described them as being a little bit angled so that you could dovetail pieces together. Yeah. Of course, this is his declaration and, you know, you see him being there on site and I, right. I don't have any reason not to believe him, but no. then you go to that dovetailing, that makes sense in considering the complexity of the construction already. Yeah, there's more power in a wedge shape. I, I think later on, as we hear in the episode, as p folks may hear, I may have said things were cut at 90 degrees. What I meant, what I meant to say was that there are very sharp edges originally that yes. seem to defy explanation. And they do defy explanation because no archaeologist can tell you how it was done still today. I want to make that clear. Yes. Nobody really knows. But think about a, a, a dovetail joint in the Beatles song. But it's an interlocking piece that adds strength. And it's clever about how they angled this stuff. And also, they had a pretty good understanding of math and, and the very difficult architectural math in that they had miniatures of some of these structures. And they used a very specific formula for scaling that down and building these miniatures. Pretty advanced society architecturally with metallurgy and also masonry, and that the masonry part might be the most baffling. Well, echoing back now to one of the foundational articles we talked about in part one here, it's that uh, all that's interesting article on Pumapunku here, and they touch upon some interesting points about the end. What's uh, generally known about the end of Tiwanaku, and some people believe uh, 500. Uh, CE to 400 CE is the start of their height. There's certainly people living there, of course, in smaller communities, but they reached a height, the pinnacle of that culture around that time, and it kind of abruptly ended around 1080 or CE. It's like what Dr. Barnhart said, is that we don't know a whole lot about the beginning, but we know a lot more about the end. And that 1000 CE or 80 that seems to be agreed upon by a lot of people. And then, then there was a 500-year gap before right. the Inca came along, I believe, right? Yes. And like I said, to them, they were a mystery. They thought that hey, these folks may have, uh, they may have been here at the start. You know? Right. This is important. And they in, were influenced quite a bit by Tiwanaku culture. So uh, just that article just says like, well, there you go. And then at the peak of the civilization... Things start to unravel here. The surrounding homes within Pumapunku and the monuments seem to quickly empty. I don't know if this is debatable or not, but this is telling in that their large swaths of agriculture, their crops, fields of uh, potatoes, corn, quinoa, were just left fallow. And the people vanished from the area and they probably broke into small factions and a lot of them fled into the mountains and other areas. So up until recently, this article says, conventional wisdom suggested that the desertion was prompted by a severe prolonged drought that ravaged the crops and made sustaining a large urban population impossible. However, some researchers have contested this, pointing out that the new climate research suggests the region's drought didn't begin until decades after the start of Tiwanaku civilization's collapse. So... Here is, I'm not going to say this one puts it to bed. It's still debated, but here's, I think, a pretty good argument 
about that we can rule out one cause of the dissolution of the Tiwanaku state from drought. Now, uh, here's one researcher in his paper that puts forward the idea that it wasn't drought so much that phased out the Tiwanaku. From a February 2002 article in the journal World Archaeology titled Rethinking Disaster, Induced Collapse in the Demise of the Andean Highland States, Wari and Tiwanaku by Patrick Ryan Williams of the Field Museum of Natural History. And his abstract reads, The role of drought in the collapse of the ancient states of the Andean Middle Horizon has received a great deal of attention in recent years. The only Andean valley where both principal states of this time period, Wari and Tiwanaku, and remember we talked about the Wari in part one, they were closely allied with them, uh, goes on to say, had established settlements in Moquigua, Peru. Based on a GIS network analysis of ancient irrigation systems and detailed paleoclimatic data, I assess the assertion that a centuries-long drought caused the collapse of state colonies in this valley circa AD 1000. And just, I had to look that up. What is a GIS? Uh, well, so an explanation of GIS from the Esri, E-S-R-I, dot com website, a geographic information system, GIS, is a system that creates, manages, analyzes, and maps all types of data. GIS connects data to a map, integrating location data, where all things are, with all types of descriptive information, what things are like there. This provides a foundation for mapping and analysis that is used in science in almost every industry. GIS helps users understand patterns, relationships, and geographic context. The benefits include improved communication and efficiency, as well as a better management and decision-making. And what this can be like is taking a map of the missing 411 people in people's national parks and laying that over the cave system. Or UFO sightings laid over dogman sightings. Right. And it's like, well, what, what is it like there? Well, it's very cavey and very marshy. A lot of people get lost. Or it's very open. You shouldn't get lost. You know, so it gives you an idea of mapping points there with the data that you find. And that's what they did for this paper here. So Williams concludes that the onset of the drought significantly post-dated collapse and suggest that factions of Tiwanaku social groups who allied themselves with worry settlers upset the ecological balance of water use in the valley prior to the end of the first millennium A.D., the increase in agricultural activity in the upper Sierra in conjunction with the political instability caused by the fissioning of Tiwanaku political power in the valley created an environment of vulnerability for the Tiwanaku state colonies. It was the complex interaction of social and ecological factors that led to the collapse of the largest Western colony of the Tiwanaku state. The Wari Imperial Colony played a pivotal role in this collapse by establishing an administrative center in the upper valley that drew away resources from the Tiwanaku state below. So and ironically here, the political instability caused by the Tiwanaku colonial collapse may have been instrumental in the downfall of the Wari colony as well. They're like, to me, two black holes circling each other, drawing resources, and they were working together and then didn't work out. They're drawing, they're drawing resources away that are critical. And this caused a little bit of strife, which is what we're going to talk about a little bit later about how this place came unraveled. Yeah. The main takeaway for me is that the drought, all that drought business happened a long time after 1000 CE, after this place collapsed. Right. It's just more like a, a social conflict. Political and administrative, and it just right. it, it didn't work out. And then suddenly, 
Well, hey, come on. L.A. and the Owens Valley and the water, you know, the, the, there was a big battle. And there's still battles going on now I, that have yeah. been front page news about the BLM and land grazing rights. It's all the same kind of stuff. Or the Colorado River, where's that water going? Who's using it? Yeah. I mean, we're dealing with the same thing today and in many parts of the United yeah. States anyway. And and I, th- I imagine everywhere. So Yeah, they didn't have, they had resources. They didn't have enough to fix this. And so... And they might not have thought about that. Like, you might right. not have understood... Until the, it's too late. Impact of this shifting of society or, or these resources that are upstream, right? Literally and figuratively. Now they try to figure all that stuff out. Yeah. But this is one of those lessons you wouldn't learn until something crashed and burned. <laughs> well, you like, know, and hey, then where at that is point, everybody? And well, someone's got to survive split. the experience to bake it into the next time you put a community next to another one and say, right. uh, well, let me tell you something. <laughs> these two, you know, there ain't room yeah. in this valley for the two of these towns, you know, so or the two of these cultures or whatever. So Yeah, and it could be a little like Roanoke. It's just like, okay, we didn't really plan. We're not getting any supplies. Nobody can, but do we think about anybody getting back to us next year? It's like, yeah, what happens if that doesn't happen? Well, Jamestown is very scarce, but, you know, some of those were able to cling together with the locals and make a, a go at it here, maybe with Roanoke, what we believe is that maybe they just said like, okay, you know what? This isn't working. Those people have been around for a long time and they seem pretty happy. Right. Except for the inter-tribal wars and killing each other. Maybe what happens is that eventually you get tribal members with gray eyes. Right. And well, what's the mystery there? It's just like, hey, it wasn't working with what we were doing. So we we went to the system that did work, which is again just dispersing everybody. So here are the conclusions to that paper and that stream of thought. The analysis of ecological effects of drought in the Titicaca heartland does not seem to indicate severe water shortages until the end of the 11th century, 80. In summary for the paper, the hydraulic analysis of Moquegua agriculture presented here also rules out a disaster caused by environmentally induced water shortages. Instead, it seems more likely that local factions within the Mokegua Tiwanaku populations were developing, perhaps in response to the high degree of economic independence forced on them by the state. Once the Mokegua revolution had gained enough momentum, it began to follow its own course. The ramifications of losing one of its prime maize-producing regions may have further destabilized the authority structure of the state and the heartland itself. But this hypothesis requires testing at Tiwanaku itself. So anyway, the conclusion goes on that, uh, yeah, there was a bit of strife that kind of rose up. And the real reason here for the collapse is, yeah, basically social vulnerability to certain natural and political stresses on a, uh, being a primal factor here. And that likely, and Mokegua, water and social dynamics, were very crucial elements to the abandonment of the site. My questions are about the series of events, and no one's going to have answers to these because I don't think yeah. they know. But when we talk about the Viracocha and the, the, the Amara people talking about the Viracocha rising up and then the sun and the moon were born from Isla del Sol and Isla right. de la Luna, yeah. possibly after a cataclysmic event. So let's say there was a, a great flood pertaining to an impact of some kind or an explosion of some kind, which seems less likely. Which there was, that they think of the Yucatan, which brought down a lot of dinosaurs. Right, brought down the dinosaurs. So maybe a smaller thing happened but that blotted out the sun for a while. Right. And then the question would be, did that water 
wherever it was, because I don't think Titicaca didn't have enough water in it to produce a great flood. The impact would have had to been in a much larger body of water. I so would think so, yeah. Did that maybe destroy, and reminding people that Pumapunku is a monument within Tiwanaku. Tiwanaku yeah, has its, its own, you know, the Kalasasaya that we talked about in part one and these other structures, but the mm -hmm. Pumapunku structure is more the volcanic rock, and that's the one that's scattered. Uh -huh. What happened to that? How did it get destroyed? Was it destroyed in this flood that preceded the Inca origin story relating to Isla del Sol, and then that destroyed the Pumapunka structures? So when the Inca arrived, it was already destroyed, and we don't really know how or why and what caused that flood. Right. Because is that the Great Flood or is it a different flood? <laughs> well, hey, the Great Missoula Flood, okay, that was where there was an I glacial yes. ice dam. Yes. That broke. And you're talking I about maybe 10,000 feet of ice cold, chilly water that they believe, uh, it is great animation that goes with us. I, I think yeah. it's a, uh, it might be a Nova. Uh, uh, I watch a lot yeah, of Yeah, I think it was. I remember seeing that. Yeah. You know, these blocks are heavy, right? But right. they were saying, you know, boulders, the size of office buildings were being tossed around when that dam broke. I mean, it's a much more monumental scale pun intended, right. water rushing that fast can move big stones. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later. I want you to keep that thought in mind because there are a few prevailing theories of what happened in this place that are, let's say, uh, non-natural, man-made more. And what are the more likely scenarios? Stones or people, there was a huge upheaval, okay? And that going back to that article, uh, it just goes on to say and finish up here, this has led some to suggest that the most plausible explanation is violent internal social upheaval, a kind of implosion that tore Tiwanaku society apart. Like I said, it wasn't just maybe an earthquake, as people, some people thought, or uh, aliens came back, or you know, something horrible happened. It's like their society kind of fell apart too, because as we've seen, Take a look at all the natural disasters that happen after an earthquake. People rebuild. They stick there. You know, Tornado Alley here. People, what do people say? Like, no, nope, we're staying here. Our family's here. We're going to rebuild. They're very dedicated if it's working and they have ties to it. But here, it's like this thing fell apart on a societal level. But it may have coincided with other things that happened. It's like, okay, you know what? This is ruined. <laughs> like I said earlier, like, this is wrecked. We don't really even have the knowledge. Maybe those people got killed or they fled, like, we don't really have the knowledge to put this back together or build new. So uh, we're splitting, we're taking off into the hills. So to support this theory, the article goes on, uh, they point to the evidence that some structures, including the Gate of the Sun, were brought down by time or looters. They were deliberately torn down and broken, maybe. That's what the article yeah. is suggesting here, is that somebody gets like, you know what, this place sucks. I, we bought your baloney for a long time, but now, like you said, earlier in part one, Maybe they got tired of the sacrifices. Or maybe they, yeah, the sacrifices and the hallucinogens. Maybe some people are like, yep, nope, um, I just got my uh, my 30-day chip. <laughs> also, by the way, I'm seeing things yeah. a little differently. Yeah, now that I've come down and uh, yeah. you're not some uh, you know twirling god of uh, glowing light in the sky, you're just yeah. a dude in a robe who's like chopping people up. I, that's not so appealing. Yeah, it's uh, not also, great. you know, again, if uh, people are struggling, maybe there's a bad harvest. It's not there's a, that there's a drought, yeah. there's a bad harvest, and the wealthy people are eating better than you. It's like, hey, come on, man. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, I will say what I've learned about English history, you know, when there's 
and European history, when there's famine, when the, the crops are failing, when the game is low, even the king didn't eat well. Yeah, he's surviving. He's eating a little better than uh, Joe Peasant, but right. no food is around. So here, like, yeah, whatever's happening, there's some strife. So do I amuse you? <laughs> like that Joe Peasant. That was more Sorry. of a laughter. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. What, what, what do you mean I'm funny? I'm, I'm funny? Like I'm I, funny? Yeah. Like a clown? So anyway, but well, here you go. <laughs> Neighboring complex seems to have been burned, and some of the vessels there that were dedicated to food storage were smashed. That's a little weird. It's like purposely wrecking stuff. The burn part, keep another note of that. That's another, ties in with another theory of uh, possibly explosion uh, happening. Here we go. But- Overall, again, the, the article just, it says the destruction paints a picture of an angry populace, but what might have thrown a stable population into chaos remains a mystery. So that's what the article's positing is that they seem to be doing pretty good up until now. What's going on here? What, what threw everything into chaos? And what you have now, though, is that, yes, time has not been kind of the site. 1,000 years of wind and rain have weathered the stones and much of that te vast temple complex is gone, carried away by looters, stone miners, and ages past. And uh, apparently some people are taking skulls home for good luck. <laughs> so, yes. As we said at the beginning here, treasure hunters too. Everybody's harvesting the site's rare relics that they can find, rare metal ornaments, jewelry, and colorful pot shirts. Oh, uh, here's another fun thing. I think I sent you an article about uh, somebody in Egypt claimed that that was the finger of a giant, the mummified, brown, shriveled, beef jerky, teriyaki style of a finger of a giant human being. Somebody had their possession and said it was looted. Their grandfather looted that from one of the pyramids. Oh. There's a picture of it. You and I read this, and I think Marie yeah, yeah, too, because yeah. she loves Jimmy Stewart's mummified- Oh, the Chan story. Yes, the, the, yeah. the mummified finger story. She can't get enough of that. And apparently, but that was my point of bringing this up is that like, what? And you can see a picture of it and there's a dollar, I think there's a dollar bill or sorry, a local currency bill to see the scale of it. And it's a big, big old finger, the size of a banana. Big mother finger. And it's a giant, the guy <laughs> said, yes, I found this uh, while looting. And it's like, you don't really want to sell that because it's illegal. <laughs> you can't get right. This gets out. You looted part of the, uh, the, the rare treasures of the, of one of the pyramids. It doesn't go over well. But it's out there. These things get looted. Sometimes they're pretty fantastical. Hey, everyone. I'm Natasha Levis, an actress who also doubles as a witch. As I'm casting hexes, I love to listen to Astonishing Legends. So let's get back to the show. I do want to mention one other site, Oyante Tambo. I'm glad you are mentioning it because that's another fascinating find there. Yeah, there's about 500 miles north, uh, north northwest a little bit of uh, Pumapunku. Yeah, I did the straight line Google map thing, and it says it's about 331 miles. Or oh, 331. Four, I thought yeah, it was four. Well, no, it's 532 kilometers. Oh, that's for, what I'm thinking. Uh, it, not imperial measurement, friends. What's interesting is that when you draw that straight line, yeah, you're right. It, it, it's a straight line that bifurcates Lake Titicaca straight through, heading in a northwesterly direction. And with that distance, there is some pretty compelling connections between the stonework found at Pumapunku and what's called the Wall of the Six Monoliths at Ollantaytambo. Ollantaytambo, yes. Ollantaytambo. Yeah, it's another monumental, like, wow, how did they do that piece of stonework? It's massive. 
the monumental structures there, like the wall of the six monoliths, uh, some people believe were the work of the earlier Tiwanaku culture that was reused by the Incas. Yeah, and we didn't say that. Ollante Tambo is an Inca location. Yes, and so... So that we need to point that out. No, but I, I, that's why I wanted you to bring that up, because I think it might be a connection that they were so influenced many hundreds of years later... Right. How did that technology get across 500 years of disconnect? How did it get across, or how did they even move it? If they just swiped it from a Tiwanaku location, yeah, that's monumental in itself. Pun intended. Yes, pun intended. But what you also find there, again, the connections are the T-shaped sockets, the cramps, the architectural yes. cramps that either had... Uh, metal cold hammered ingots into the sockets to connect them like pins. Yeah. Or it was a combination of uh, those I-shaped sockets were composed of a unique copper alloy of, of uh, copper, arsenic, nickel, and bronze. Right. Pay attention because they had some special knowledge, uh, at least pretty advanced for the time, of metallurgy. And that's the connection. And you're finding this all over the world. Here's the other thing. You're finding some of this, it's argued, there are similarities between those sockets, the shapes of them, and also other locations around the world, like at Persepolis in modern-day Iran. Also in Giza, <laughs> Java, yes. Angkor Wat, Cambodia, Vietnam, as the, we will talk about this right. in a little a little bit after our next section here, it's either implies either the same builders or the same teachers, even though there's mm -hmm. a 500 year gap in these cultures. Yeah. And all back in Peru, Coracancha. Yes. And the connection between Tiwanaku and San Pedro de Atacama during the late Middle Horizon period, 600 to 900 current era. So again, I brought this up. I wanted you to mention this because it's some bigger ideas. We're not going to go too deeply here, but it's simultaneous invention theory, that uh, simultaneous discovery. It's too similar. At least I think it is. I don't know. Anna, yeah. who is in the Astonishing Research Corps, right. found connections between the similar metallurgy developments in China. Yeah. I can't remember if it's at the same time or earlier, but... Regardless of that, in theory, those two cultures cannot be connected at all. But the, mm -hmm. the dog, the, the the way they're clamping the stones together. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It's mind boggling. It may not be that uh, you have uh, <laughs> ancient uh, Sumerian demigods transferring this knowledge to people. It could be the phenomena of multiple discovery phenomena. That's a hypothesis that scientific discoveries, inventions, often are made at the same time by different teams or individuals in vastly different areas. I feel like that might exist chemically or construction-wise in a right. less specific way than these clamps, though. These clamps are very yeah. specific about yeah. how the stones or cramps, as you say, are being held together. Like, I'm fine believing that people were mixing bronze and arsenic at the same right. time in different parts of the world, but then pouring them into two disparate stones specifically to cramp them together mm -hmm. with an I shape or a T shape or whatever, that is just too much common ground going on there for me to be a coincidence but i hear you uh, i don't know I, I don't know the workaround for it okay i would say the more mundane approach would be like well it just it's a clever idea it just makes sense and it makes sense to human beings that like well, the wheel made sense too but no <laughs> well, that, everyone thinks right. the egyptians didn't have that so gobekli tepe didn't have that and uh yeah you know or that commercial with larry david have you seen that yet 
And yeah. he goes, I call this the wheel. He's like, yeah, it's a miss. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't know because we've not found evidence of it yet. And as we like to say here, an absence of evidence is not evidence of an absence. Just because you can find it yet doesn't mean it didn't wasn't existing then. If it was wood, it's rotted by now. The only thing it would have to be made out of, to be that old is stone or metal. But as we've seen with these cramps, either they've all deteriorated. And here's the thing. If this place is, as some claim, 15,000 years old, 17,000 years old, that metal may have already deteriorated where the stones remain in place, or they were looted, or they were reused, dug out. How we know about them is that they didn't get all of the residue. There's some traces of it, and that can be studied. What I liked is that uh, in the main channel, I think that is at Pumapunku, these massive stones that were used for drainage, some of these ingots were there of a metal they don't know, they don't know what it is yet. And I don't know if that means it hasn't been studied because this is very expensive to study this stuff, or they analyzed it and they still don't know what it's made of. That in itself is a mystery. There's obviously a lot of theories about how this place got built, but one that I found the most shocking when uh, the researchers first brought it to us in the Astonishing Research Corps, uh, specifically Anna, I want to thank you so much for digging this up. I keep saying that on this particular series, but <laughs> it's a fascinating idea because it's this idea that maybe the stones were not giant stones that were moved into place, but that they were poured mm -hmm. like concrete or a form of concrete, which is a geopolymer. So, of course, when we started talking about this, one of the first people we thought about was our friend Chris Cogswell, Dr. Chris Cogswell, who has a degree in chemical engineering. And we thought we could have him on to see what he thought about this because he's a very interesting person. He has his own podcast, which you'll hear about, the Mad Scientist podcast. But the other thing that's interesting about him is that he likes to take a very scientific approach to these kinds of mysteries, but he's also very open to exploring them. And he's open to unanswered questions. And he's been a friend of ours for years and years now. And we wanted to see what he thought about the various papers that Professor Joseph Davidovitz wrote regarding geopolymers. He's considered the father of the geopolymer idea and the theories behind it. One of the things I really wanted to do was to see what Doc Coggs, as we call him, <laughs> thought about all this and have him review these papers because he's very critical about peer-reviewed papers and journals. He's like, what journals has this person been published in? How many people have seen it? And I wanted to get his feedback on that because we're laymen when it comes to that kind of stuff. I thought that he was going to come back on this a little bit harsher than he did. And he does have a, a skeptical viewpoint about the bigger picture of it. Yeah. And he makes some very good points about Professor Davidovitz and the idea that, well, he, this is his theory, and now he's applying it to everything that's ever been built throughout <laughs> well, antiquity. It, it makes sense in a lot of cases, sure. Yeah, but on the other hand, it does explain a lot of things. And uh, there's a lot of folks who say, oh, well, no, wait, this is a... <laughs> possibly racist philosophy because you're saying, oh, mm. well, Dr. Davidovitz, he's been on the record. He said, well, he didn't think they necessarily had the technology in this case and in other cases that he suggested to cut and move large stones. We're not saying that that wasn't possible. In fact, we see this idea as much more sophisticated than that. This seems to be a more sophisticated and advanced idea that, if anything, is superior to what we know how to do today. Yeah, I don't get that logic because you're you're separating one from the other. You're saying they could only have figured out how to cut these stones, but then you're saying they didn't have the technology to do that, so someone else externally had to give them knowledge about geopolymers. 
And what right. we're saying is like, well, no. Why, why can't the logic be that they came up with the geopolymer idea? And I They have, figured it out. Well, exactly. I have a little tidbit later on when we get to our conclusions. Maybe that'll shed a little bit of light on that. But the only thing that's maybe problematic about it is scientifically, then you're saying that somehow uh, there, there's no proof of them coming up with complex chemical formulations. Not that they could, but there's just no evidence really that we have of that. But you're you're saying that, okay, instead of doing the... Uh, let's let's say the uh, uh, the metallurgy aspect of that, uh, you know, you're going to need some more advanced tools, maybe than bronze chisels and hammers, stone hammers, to get that done so precisely. But we just don't know what they used. Or you're going to allow them some advanced technology in the chemical field, and that's what we want, yes. Chris, because he's a chemist. <laughs> like we we actually yes. know somebody who knows th- something about chemistry. It's like let's run all these. Uh, formulations by you you tell us does this make sense that's what i want to know from chris i i couldn't agree more so before we get into our discussion with him about the big picture here we wanted to talk a little bit about professor joseph davidovitz and this is a bio taken from uh, what i think is his own website it's davidovitz.info and I'm just going to excerpt some of it. Professor Joseph Davidovitz was born on March 23rd, 1935 in Villers-Saint-Paul, Oise, France. I might not be saying those words right. I did take four years of French, so that should be at least partially acceptable mm. without me getting stoned. He is known by the <laughs> scientific community for being the inventor of geopolymer science. The general public recognizes his works on archaeological science and his discoveries regarding building the pyramids in Egypt. He posited that the blocks of the Great Pyramid are not carved stone, but mostly a form of limestone concrete or man-made stone. This odd theory is officially endorsed by several renowned materials scientists. He holds the French Audaire Nationale du Mérite. He is the author and co-author of numerous scientific papers and conference reports and holds more than 50 patents. Uh, His bio is much longer than that. I want to get down to this last paragraph of it, though. He is the president of the Geopolymer Institute and chair of the annual conference Geopolymer Camp, saint Quentin, maybe, France? I'm not mm-hmm. sure how you would say that en français. This is a workshop conference aimed at gathering academic as well as industrial scientists willing to meet, share, and learn about geopolymers at large. Professor Davidovitz's research is applications-driven, and his main undertaking is to ensure the industrial success of this new chemistry in the following fields fire-resistant materials, decorative stone artifacts, thermal insulation, low-tech building materials, low-energy ceramic tiles, refractory items, thermal shock refractories, et cetera, et cetera. This is a very long list. Yeah. It's like one of Forrest's lists. So <laughs> what uh, I'm going to say... Yeah. <laughs> I'm just no, it, there's but, a lot of... Man, if, if you could pioneer some of this stuff, uh, you could be a yeah. very wealthy person because it's used in everything. And... and uh, it's fascinating, yeah. So it's it's quite an exciting field. It is, indeed. So uh, without further ado, let's get to our discussion with Doc Coggs about what he thinks about Professor Davidovitz's ideas about geopolymers and how that might relate to Puma Punku. We'd like to welcome our good friend Chris Cogswell back to the show, who we thought it might be good to bring him in for this section on geopolymers, because he invented them. No, he didn't. Uh, well, one, it's, well, it's been way too long since we've had Coggs comment. And secondly, we should get somebody who knows something about chemistry. Like, God, who who could that be? It's like, Doc Cogs, come on. Yes. And we just did, <laughs> no, we think of uh, Cogs as, it's like, yeah, our our, uh, our paranormal friend to weigh in with reason and logic. And we forgot that he's a chemist. <laughs> this might actually work out. So of course we got to have you on. Thanks guys for having me. I know it's like, um, 
I'm, I'm getting calls now for like you know UFO consulting practically, and then it's like, <laughs> oh wait, what's your what did you study again? Oh, you know something about like things that we can mix together. Oh, that's interesting. Anyways, tell me about the UFOs. <laughs> that's, uh, that's all people want to talk to me about. For our listeners who don't know who you are, why don't you just quickly explain a little bit about your uh, your background, education, and who you are and what you do, and of course, plug that podcast of yours. Oh. Absolutely, please. All right. So yeah, my name is uh, my name is Chris Cogswell. I have a PhD in chemical engineering, and actually, the work that I did uh, focused on the creation of nanomaterials using basically the same chemistry we're going to be talking about today. Uh, essentially, aluminosilicates. So anything with silica and aluminum in it can polymerize with oxygen to form a crystal or a rock. It doesn't have to be a crystal, but it can form solid materials. And so uh, that mixture of things has taken on a couple of different names in the world of what we're talking about today. We're going to be talking about them in terms of what's called geopolymers. Uh, so polymers that form geological structures. And yeah, I got, I mean, I got involved in podcasting because you guys were uh, silly enough to like read my email and then not be weirded <laughs> out that I was like, please check out my resume. I want to talk about ghosts with you guys. You sound cool. Uh, and then, yeah, through the arc and everything else, I kind of learned to make my own podcast. And so now we do the Mad Scientist podcast, which is a show that looks at really the philosophy and history of science and weird claims. So it's all your fault. Well, yeah. And and <laughs> who are your cohorts uh, over there on the Mad Scientist? Yeah. So my co-host is Marie Mayhew, who actually is also a, a member of the ARC. And that's how we got started. And so our show really has led us to some really exciting things. Marie now does her own show as well. Uh, she's investigating like cold cases and stuff. I'm you know, involved in kind of science communication and skepticism and all this other cool stuff. So if you like any of this stuff that Scott and Forrest talk about, and sometimes you're like, man, I wonder what kind of chemistry they use here. What what kind of molecules would Bigfoot be playing with? Our show might be for you. So check us <laughs> there out. You go. It's a lot of fun. The yes. Mad Scientist Podcast. Well, let's talk a little bit about this. So the long and short of it is we're focusing on possible explanations for how Pumapunku may have been built uh, and, and maybe some of the other things at Tiwanaku. And so there's this idea, which for people who aren't familiar with it, that it possibly could be geopolymers, which I didn't know what they were, what you've been studying them for years, until about three weeks ago. So, <laughs> and it, but the, the idea seems to be that you could uh, make a slurry, make a liquid form of this stone and pour it into a form. And maybe that would explain how you get it into places rather than moving a single 130-ton block, you're actually moving a much smaller slurry or the materials to make that and pouring the form on the site. So that's the idea behind Mr. Davidovitz's philosophy here, and that's Joseph Davidovitz, which we're going to talk about a little bit, and you were familiar with him, of course, Chris. So coming back into that, I, I was looking at um, actually his Wikipedia page. God forbid I should mention Wikipedia, but he talks about how he believes that the stones of the pyramids were were cast and not carved. Although he admits that some, like the granite, would have been carved. And there's huge, giant stones of granite that still would call for things being moved into place. So he doesn't seem to go into a bigger philosophy of some is cast, some is carved, some is whatever. And the other thing that we'll talk about, and we talked about this when we did Coral Castle, was that gentleman Wally Wallington or whatever, the contractor in Michigan who 10 or 15 years ago showed everybody how he could like stand a 10-ton stone up by himself 
which is pretty awesome. And since then, we've all seen the, the folks who used ropes to walk a Moai replica into position. So we're not saying that you can't do these things that way, to be clear, but this is an interesting idea. And we wanted to run it by you because we had um, our researchers, uh, particularly Anna and Bert, who were working really hard on this in the research core, coming up with a lot of uh, Mr. Davidovitz's papers, which I read three times and still only barely grasp. And I watched an hour long speech with him. And the question is, what did you think when we ran this by you? Because you actually understand the science behind this. Because a lot of times when we call you, you say, you guys are crazy. This is ridiculous. This doesn't take. Mm. What is your take on the idea behind this chemistry and, and the geopolymers possibly being an explanation for how this place might have been constructed? Usually when you hear, hey, I've got a theory about Puma Punku, you run. <laughs> <laughs> you should just, no, I don't want to hear it, you know? <laughs> this one, it's interesting. It's probably the least crazy one I've heard, I'll say for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. The interesting thing with it is, I'm sure there's at least a couple listeners who are, are weird like I am. And so when you go to bed at night, you end up watching lots of YouTube. And mm -hmm. uh, one of the YouTube channels that I've completely fallen in love with is this guy. Basically, he, he's been building his own civilization practically in a jungle someplace called primitive archaeology primitive construction these sorts mm -hmm. of channels and what he shows a lot and it's something that's really interesting is old methodologies for making concrete concrete is a geopolymer and you don't need a lot of stuff to make concrete it's a mixture of aggregates so like bigger rock chunks some smaller rock chunks and then a binder that makes it all chemically react together and then solidify. We've known that people can do this. People have known to do this. His, you know, uh, cultures have really known to do this for quite some time. The conversation seems to really be more about when did concrete technology first make its way to the Americas? And is there really evidence that casting was used for these places and things like that? But scientifically, there's no reason that this couldn't have happened. It's not like, you know, they're using sound waves to levitate the H blocks or something. You know what I mean? The, the guy's basically <laughs> right. like, look, they just knew about concrete before we thought they did. This is maybe a probable idea. Now, there's other reasons to kind of take into account what he's saying is like this guy, Davidison, he, he sort of was the first person to really discuss non-concrete geopolymers as like an idea. And after that, he's basically claimed that everything made out of stone must have been made out of geopolymers. <laughs> you mm, know, like, right. like he seems to kind of be shoehorning his idea in a lot of different places. And so Puma Punku will be like the third or fourth archaeological site that he claims must have been made with geopolymers. Right. But again, it's, you know, scientifically, there's nothing really wrong with what he's saying. It's more that kind of archaeologically, I guess, the theory doesn't have a lot of support. But no, chemically, I mean, it makes totally fine. Well, so do you think that the reason it doesn't have archaeological support is just because the archaeologists can't get a line behind it because it seems like such an out there idea? Or, I mean, we, we, we talk about the evidence of this. And, you know, one of the things he talks about in his paper and on the one hour YouTube video that we found, or I should say Anna found, and I watched that as well, and we'll share the links to all that, is the presence of organic matter in the volcanic version of this work, which he says is, it can't work, that can't be there. The organic matter can't be there by the nature of how the volcanic rock is made. It's one thing to find it on the surface, but when you drill down inside and you get past the point of contamination, there shouldn't be anything organic in there. 
And so that indicates that it might be a geopolymer. So first off, I guess, we should maybe explain for people what a geopolymer is so that there's some context sure. like what we're saying. So the way, okay, so the way that a geopolymer is made, the way that concrete really is made, any of these things are made is essentially, so you can think about a rock as being made up of, again, molecular bonds and the molecules in them make, so in this case, it's silica, so SI and aluminum, so AL, and silica and aluminum bond between oxygen. So it's like silica, oxygen, silica, oxygen, silica, oxygen, aluminum. Right. And so depending on the ratio of silicon to aluminum and other metal species, you get different types of rocks. So like the difference between, say, like a quartz and a sandstone is its ratio is more than it is hard and fast rules. Some now some rocks that's not true of. So if they make like a different crystalline structure, whatever, but chemically, they're all basically the same kind of stuff. You know, minerals are different, but rocks and silicon, alumina and carbon and sodium and whatever. The way that a geopolymer is made is you take rocks that already exist, so they already have silica, oxygen, aluminum bonds. You mix them up with a acidic or uh, something that'll dissolve them a little bit, essentially. And that's what's called uh, alkalination. Basically, what it's doing is it's making some of those oxygen sites active again. So it like breaks off the, the silica and the aluminum, makes some of these oxygen sites active you then add another species, sometimes, I mean, most often it's sodium. That causes what's called depolymerization. And so what that is, is again, so you, you've dissolved this thing a little bit. Then you start to kind of unfurl the big long chains of molecules. And then you add a species in to cause them to all form again. That would be the hardening agent. Yeah, that would be like curing or what we, what we call condensation. Right. And so basically it's like you mix... Um, so you dissolve a bunch of stuff into one big like gel mixture of junk, and then you add a chemical back in to harden it. And because you're hardening it and it takes time to harden it, you can pour it into a mold and make it form whatever you want. In concrete, the thing that's causing the reaction to start, that curing to start, is uh, calcium oxide. Is that related to uh, quicklime? Yes. I know yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah. It's okay. quicklime. Yeah. And you can burn yourself. It can be very uh, caustic. Yeah. Because again, it has to be basically strong enough to like dissolve some of that rock. Right. So if it right, can do that, right. it can dissolve you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I, I know that also, you know, it's used in outhouses and for uh, human remains. Yeah. If you're going to bury them because it, it uh, yeah, just eats away at, at anything, keeps it kind of neutral. Yeah. The reasons that these ancient peoples, I believe, who had some specialized knowledge that they developed is the ease of use. You use concrete because you can pour it into forms. You can shape it how you need it uh, to, to end up as. It may be a lot easier than carving it. Yeah, so the argument actually, it's interesting because when you guys first floated this past me, one of the first question was, well, where are all the molds? If they had this technology, why would they have stopped using it? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's like, there's mythology around out there about, say, like Roman concrete, right? They're like, oh, the Romans right. had this great concrete, and then we forgot how to make it or whatever. That's not really true, right? Like, we never forgot. Yeah. But those are continuous societies. Because the idea here is that something erased these folks off the earth rather suddenly, and maybe their knowledge was lost. But see, well, that's the thing, though, right? This is those areas where now other theories can kind of take hold because 
he's arguing, for example, that there were no quarries. There's no evidence of quarries in the area. Right. But then for his theory to make sense, there's also no evidence of large-scale mixing operations and curing ovens and molds. And and that's, I think, kind of what we – what we talk about a lot when we look at ideas like this and people ask, you know, well, why, why aren't they just open to this idea or these questions that these could, this could be the way it was done? The difference really is that science and all of these processes that are supposed to be scientific, you know, whether or not you think archaeology is scientific or not, which is like a whole other can of worms, it's supposed to be a deductive reasoning process. So you're supposed to start with you look at the evidence you have, and from that, you deduce the explanation that requires the least amount of wild assumptions. And in the cases of like megalithic stones, that often is they used a hundred people at a time to move a single stone because they had unlimited people and there was no, you know, labor unions. Labor's cheap when it's worthless, right? So whatever. <laughs> you throw people at the stones until they move. But in this case, this one to me at least seems like it does require a lot of assumptions and everything else. It's definitely not as wacky as the most common ones out there. You know, the, some of the problems though are, for example, that process that I talked about of like making concrete or making a geopolymer, right. it's literally doing what the earth does naturally. So the difference between like a geopolymer or a, a cast rock like this and a normal rock like a natural stone it's not that big of a difference. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's easy to tell when something has been cast versus when it hasn't been because there's perfection in the crystal structure or the rock structure, the polymer structure, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, a natural material will tend to have more random stuff in it. Whereas a real a cast thing, something that was engineered or designed, tends to have a perfect composition across the board every time. It's the difference between taking a cup of river water and doing an elemental analysis of that versus taking a bottle of Poland spring. Right. right. Um, the Poland spring is going to be the same no matter where you go, but the river water will change a lot depending on where you look. And that's actually one of the things he makes a claim about in his paper is these stones are so different than like the surrounding area. <laughs> to me, that's argument in the opposite column. <laughs> That's that's an argument that these aren't cast because if they were cast, you would expect them to, again, you would expect them to have more of a homogeneous structure to them. Yeah. But again, see, this is where these, this wiggle room comes in though. You could also then just say, well, you know, but the people at the time didn't have perfect methods and whatever. And that's why, again, if you're going to be sort of scientific about this, you have to go to the argument that requires the least assumptions right the the one that fits the evidence the best without the without extraneous stuff the quarrying for example mm-hmm. he's right you, you couldn't find quarries but he did find sites he did find the one site where he compared the thin sample right from one of the monoliths under a uh, scanning electron microscope and found that it was very similar or more similar than uh three other proposed sites that were from an earlier paper that uh the government had undertaken in uh bolivia there was structure there that masked, and he also found what he thought was what looked like it might be a, a binding agent mm-hmm. in that sample. And then he's also saying that he's found air bubbles, which you wouldn't get in naturally formed stone either, as far as he knows. I mean, so you're not agreeing with that. You know, folks can't see you, but I see you sort of semi-rolling <laughs> you see the face your eyes. I made. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> the thing is that, again, like the argument that like you couldn't get air bubbles in naturally occurring stone and stones. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, of course you can, right? We has anyone ever been geode hunting? Yeah, <laughs> right? mm-hmm. like yes, right. of course you get air bubbles. You can also get really porous natural stones, right? Like zeolites and volcanic right. stones are right. extremely porous. And right. there's a lot of volcanic andesite around. Exactly. It. And that's another kind of argument I think too here is the carbon that he mentions. And this was a question, Scott, you had at the beginning that I kind of just went on a crazy bend about geopolymers. The carbon itself, that whole argument too, when he's talking about finding organic materials in this in the samples, what he means is we found carbon. And carbon can come from ash. It can come from coal. People could have been burning stuff. Like carbon will absorb into a surface. That's why, like, for example, you know, when people, um, if you ever go to like a smoker's house, <laughs> you see the brown tobacco and ash stuff everywhere. It's because the ash is in the air and the air can diffuse through the solid and then get stuck to the surfaces. And we're talking about volcanic rock that came from places that were mined from volcanically active regions potentially, and there was a lot of ash in the soil. And so there's a lot of places for ash to get on there. I think the, honestly, the biggest argument in favor of what he's saying is just that it would be a lot easier. And people at home, if you're astu- you know really astute here, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, wait a second, if this is a 180 ton stone, they still would have had to have moved 180 tons of material up the up into this site, right? The benefit, though, like Forrest, you were saying, is the ability to cast it. So you can right. move it up there in smaller batches, which would have been easier. We know that uh, historically people around the world moved large stones like this in some way. And I think, again, that's sort of the biggest downside to the argument is we know that it happened in other places too. So what would make this one so special that it needed this? You know, I mean, I think something that always helps me on stuff like this is thinking about where in time these civilizations existed, mm-hmm. right? So like Puma Kapunku was was constructed in 500 years after the Colosseum in Rome mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and right. almost a thousand years bef- after the Parthenon. So... You know, again, the argument basically would be that this technology never got to South America for moving the stones, but technology did get over there for making concrete. Right. Right. You know, why assume that that is the technology that got over there versus the technology to just move? Like, Scott, I was saying to you, it's equally possible then that they just had cranes and levers. Right. Right. Um, And we just don't have evidence of that either. (laughs) You know? Right. I think the generally accepted hypotheses on how you do the masonry itself. It's not just the quarrying. It's not just the lifting. If you're not going to pour it, if it's not a geopolymer, these stones have to be carved. Now, here's what freaks people out, because before, I think the even the geopolymer theory was advanced uh, by Davidovitz, it fueled a lot of the lore and the the wonder about this place and how they did it, because if you're not considering it being poured, then they have to be cut. Now, we've talked about this in part one. Uh, We were talking about this a little bit before we started recording and that at Pumapunku, they have discovered I-shaped architectural cramps that were used and that they know that the metal uh, was composed of a unique copper, arsenic, nickel, bronze alloy. So we do know, also from the residue in the valley, that uh, I believe also lead smelting. They were proficient in sophisticated metal work in uh, metallurgy. They knew what combinations of metals to get it to do what they wanted, and also different techniques. Some ingots in the stones were 
cold hammered ingots. Some were poured, you know, with molten. So then you have to wonder, how do they saw these things? Because that's the other thing that freaks people out. It's not just chipped away where the, the stones are kind of rough hewn, as you might see at something that's 9,500, you know, from 9,500 BCE at uh, Gobekli Tepe, where they're kind of rough hewn. They still move 17, 19, 22 ton stones somehow with a lot of people and, and perhaps uh, uh, some thick ropes and some clever engineering. But here, that's one aspect, but they also, it's the carving of the stones. How do they get the edges so precise? The blind holes where, okay, maybe you could figure out how to drill through one of these stones, but blind holes where, where basically it's uh, just say if, if it's a plus shape or a T, a T shape, the hole doesn't go all the way through. Well, the bottom edges are, they're so precise as if you routered them you know, with, mm-hmm. a, with a router because they got the bottom of the blind hole completely smooth and flat and the edges are precisely 90 degrees and when you fit them all together with the ingots they're you know as the 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 legend goes you can't even get a knife blade in there then you need some kind of machinery other than maybe just some more primitive chisels and hammers but my point is like okay so if you didn't pour it you had to cut it and if you cut it where's the evidence of the cutting tools where's the evidence of uh, of how they did that technology because that's just as astounding to me one important thing I think to remember is that Davidovitz is a geopolymer chemist, mm-hmm. really. He is not an archaeologist. Right. And so archaeologists and chemists don't go to the same conferences. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't take... Oh, is it same, like Bigfoot and UFOs? Yeah, you know, you don't take the same... <laughs> like, there's a reason that these fields have different training and different expertise and different people doing the work for them. And so... It stinks that a lot of the times the answer to stuff like this is just sort of like, yeah, but other archaeologists don't think he's telling the truth. So he's (laughs) probably not. Look at it stinks that that's like the thing you have to say, right? But, you know, I've got a cousin who has an opinion about everything. (laughs) And my mom loves, loves taking their advice about everything. And it drives me crazy sometimes, you know, because she'll be like, you know, oh, well, you know, Lisa says that this probably isn't cancerous. So I should be fine. And it's like, well, Lisa's a waitress. Uh, so <laughs> you know go to a doctor yeah, yeah i think yeah, with yeah. stuff like this it's kind of the same idea you know i mean he's making all these points about well there's no evidence of tools there's no and then but then you read archaeological studies on the sites and people are like there is evidence there's loads of yeah. evidence for tools right. Right. and for the sites and for where they did the chiseling and where they quarried it and there's evidence of them getting better at making these stones mm-hmm. <laughs> right that, mm-hmm. there's actually like a you know you look at this stuff and you think to yourself, like, how the heck do they ever do that? But I look at I look at paintings by, you know, Rembrandt and think, how the heck did he ever manage to get the light to do that thing? Mm-hmm. And it's just hours upon hours of practice and work. It's mm-hmm. hard work, you know? Yeah. And a lot of the tools that we have today, for us to get back to your point about, like, well, then how do they do it or where do these tools come from or whatever? A lot of the tools today we use are just doing repetitive motions fast. Right, right. Right. Like a saw is just literally like, it's just chiseling away at a surface continuously. Right. It's like how, a, that's how like a stone saw works. Yeah. You know, it's not doing anything different than what they could have done in the past. It's just doing it a lot faster, you know? Right, right. So, you know, I guess the answer would be that, I mean, I don't know, this was a ceremonial site of some importance or a, a town of some importance or whatever. Mm-hmm. People just worked at it forever. It's the dumbest explanation. 
<laughs> really right it's the word it's the least enticing yeah. most boring explanation yeah. is like well time they and just, pressure yeah. yeah they just worked at it forever until their right. hands fell off and then their kids did it until their hands right. fell off too but it's probably the least the one that makes the most sense given the evidence we have the other interesting thing too would be at least for this he still says in his papers like well some of these though had to be quarried and brought up anyways mm-hmm. and so it's kind of like well then why the <laughs> Why the heck do they need the geopolymer <laughs> set if they're just quarrying some of them anyways? You know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. it's kind of a fascinating case. In the research for this too, though, I was looking at some of the other things that people were mentioning with this or some of the other challenges to the stuff that he says is essentially, you know, you can't get the hardness you need on these materials with a outdoor casting method or rather with a curing method. So when you make this stuff, when you pour it, it has to cure and normally you would cure it at a higher temperature. So like a hundred degrees C and, but his argument is, well, no, you could do it at a room temperature or an outdoor temperature casting, which in this part of the world would be relatively cold um, and very windy and everything else. I honestly think that everything he's saying makes sense. Right. It, like it, None of it seems to me to be completely crazy. The, the part of it, the reason that you give it up or the part, the reason why you don't think it's the most likely one are things outside of the chemistry or outside of the kind of material science. Cause mm-hmm. all of that is cool, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And so, sense. I mean, I don't know. Well, that's what I want to ask you about. Cause there's a couple of things there. I mean, one is that he says for the one, uh, the one particular type of curing, and I can't remember if this was the acidic or alkaline curing. Uh, I think it was for the, m- maybe for the volcanic rock, but the conclusion that he came to after, 40 years ago, they were having a hard time figuring out how to um, harden the mixture. They later concluded that if you introduced guano into this mixture, you could get it to harden. And so then they were able to determine that it was entirely possible that guano was brought from the coast on llamas, because there was a guano trade route, a known guano (laughs) trade route, from on the llamas. I love this. It's migratory guano traveling on llamas (laughs) from the coast up to uh, Tiwanaku and Pumapunku. And what his indication was, was that they had, according to the what they were able to study, the history, the historical documents, and the all the lore and everything, is they were consuming way more guano than they needed for fertilizer. He also suggested, and we found this ourselves when we were researching this, before the geopolymers even got into the picture and before he pitched it, that they didn't need the fertilizer because of their raised mound agricultural system, which had ditches next to it with water in them that had uh, fish and plankton in it that would was create a natural fertilizer. So their system actually produced a fertilizer that they could then take out of the ditches and put on top of the hills. It was enough to do what they needed to do agriculturally. So then why do they need all of this guano? He also indicated, I think in one of the papers... I can't remember where it was now, but he indicated that there was uh, somewhere they had found residential area and the family was making enough, I think in this case, vinegar or another uh, another component of what he was saying would be the geopolymer for 171 people. And that it didn't they didn't need to make it in the quantity for anything else that they could think of. So he's rounding up all of these ancillary details, which, like you said, maybe it's not scientific, but it's just like, why are they bringing in so much guano? Mm-hmm. Why is this one family producing Uh, so much vinegar or other agents that would make the geopolymer work. He also mentions, and I know, and he says this himself, actually, I'll read it right here. 40 years ago, Professor Joseph Davidovitz met with a Peruvian anthropologist, Francisco Aliaga, and they decided to make one presentation at an archaeometrical conference in New York in 1981. And that's 40 years ago is based on this paper. 
Fabrication of stone objects by geopolymeric synthesis in the pre-Incan Huanca civilization in Peru. The excerpt of the preceding summary reads, quote, It is now agreed that the Tiahuanaco civilization is modeled on the pre-Incan Huanca civilization revealed by an extraordinary skill in fabricating objects and stones. A recent ethnological discovery shows that some witch doctors in the Huanca tradition use no tools to make their little stone objects, but still use a chemical dissolution of the stone material by plant extracts, or carboxylic acids. Am I saying that right? Carboxylic acids, yep. You got oh, it. God, I did okay. Just, okay. Say, it, just say it fast. Acids. Say it fast, yeah. And so, so he mentions that, and then in, the, in this other excerpt here, it says... And this is, again, something that no scientist is going to take into account necessarily when they're trying to figure this out. But w what is this chemistry? Uh, if, if we rely on the ancient legends that archaeology doesn't take into account, and then, God forgive me, I'm going to murder this Spanish. Uh, <laughs> Una sustancia de origen vegetal capaz de ablandar las piedras. Not bad for a gringo. Yeah. Thank you. All Which right. means plant extracts capable of softening stones. That's what the local South American people are telling within their cultural communities, that they had this idea that they had figured out a way to take these plant extracts, which they could, we already know they could grow, to soften stones and get what they wanted out of the stones. And then we got the guano, and we got the proof of all these materials, which I think he does a pretty good job of, even though, as you say, he's not an archaeologist. My overall point, though, is even though he's trying to back up his own theory, is that that's what everyone else is doing, too, with theirs. And they're refusing to believe X, Y, and Z. Or they, they, So you see the same thing in everyone's position. I can find all these things that point to this. They're, everyone's adjusting the data to support their own theory. Sometimes, though, and certainly in the course of Astonishing Legends, and I'm sure Mad Scientist Podcast as well, no matter how much like theater is going on, to support it, sometimes the idea is so crazy that it just there's no way it's going to work. But to me, this doesn't seem any crazier than all the other propositions. I know I'm supposed to be like your guys, you know, I'm supposed to be like the the real hardline skeptic, but I'm like, it's not that crazy. I mean, I don't know. It doesn't <laughs> no, it's, seem it's, that crazy. No, it's, it's not because we're not talking about big silver saucers, <laughs> shields, with a beam coming down and building these blocks and, and they're laser, they're laser sharpening these stones. And then uh, here you go, folks, this will get you started. We'll see you later. What we're talking about is pretty much natural processes, which to me, I started, as soon as I started to hear about th this idea of geopolymers, it answers a lot of questions. It solves a lot of the mystery, I think, which I think is why it's appealing, is that the shapes the edges. Yes, you have a problem here, as we said before. Okay, so you don't have molds. So to me, logically, like it's, uh, Scott and I, we might as well talk about this right now because uh, Cogs is answering a lot of my final theories on this and just and answering my <laughs> final questions, is that, uh, okay, so you have molds. Well, they're made out of wood. Okay, so then you have to have a process or a technique of planing wood to get it that smooth and uh, sure, you can do that, but but you know you need something like plywood, which we use nowadays. If you look at construction sites, you'll see them using plywood with rebar. To make forms, yeah, yeah. That's the other thing is that the rebar in there is that what we know is if you have a big loose chunk of concrete, it's likely it might split, uh, depending on the formulation. That's why they put rebar in it to reinforce it. You'll people will see that 
uh, framework structure, then uh, that's in, and then the concrete's poured into that, and then it's very strong. I, I believe in Asian countries, they use bamboo, just something inside to hold it. But if you've ever gone into a parking garage or you'll see a sub-basement of some kind with corporate architecture and construction, they'll kind of roughly hewn a concrete uh, wall by stacking two by sixes, uh, some kind of or wood. four by eight plywood. Yeah, four by eight plywood. Yeah. And they'll then fill that up because it doesn't need to look great. Uh, and they'll even not, not even sand down the, the seams. You don't need to. It's down, it's down below. My point is that you still see the grain of the wood embedded in the concrete. Now, given these stones have been weathered for a very long time, maybe that grain wood pattern has come off. On the other hand, you see with some of the roof, uh, Scott and I were talking about this before, and that at Pumapunku, you have what appear to be Totora reed stones. Now, we didn't quite know what that meant at the beginning, but as it said here just on the old wiki entry, is that large Totora reed stones can be found in the museum at Tiwanaku, and what they believe, uh, at least what the early visitors who reported seeing some of the standing stones still there, that they resembled straw. And here is one theory put forward by uh, Jean-Pierre Protzen and Stella Nair, who's done a lot of research on uh, Pumapunku in that, quote, uh, the roof of the hall on the outside looks like straw, although it is of stone, because the Indians cover their houses with straw. And for this room to look like the other houses, they dressed the stone and incised it so it would appear like a cover of straw. So that texture's still there. But yet, if we're using wood, flat, shapes as forms, as building forms, that texture is all gone. We don't really see any of that. Yeah. And I think, Forrest, to your point about it being weathered and aged and all of that, you would still find it on the bottom sides or in on some of the right. stuff that was on the ground. So I don't think it would be completely gone from all the sides of all the stones if there was, which is the question. Of course, then you were talking earlier, Forrest, about do they know how to even plain wood flat? So even if they are, you know, having this geopolymeric breakthrough, right? How are they making such perfect forms then? You're just moving the perfection from the stone to the form. <laughs> yeah. That, right? And Chris, you had said something about you could create a form out of clay as well, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like in modern day, for example, is you can you can even make a mold out of sand. Right. You just make a sand mold. You pour the stuff in. You let it cast. You let it cure. And then you just take it out of the sand. You know, you break the sand right. off the surface right. and leave behind these sort of... Well, how is the sand strong enough to retain the geopolymer, the concrete? Like, you literally, you just have a big a big mold of sand, and you yeah. just make whatever you want that face to look like, and then yeah. you just pour it in. It just sits there by gravity. But the sand, why isn't the sand coming apart like it does at the beach when I try to make a castle? That's what I don't Oh, because do. they're digging... Because they're, <laughs> <laughs> they're digging, like, into sand, right? Yeah. So they, oh, so they okay. make... So it's like a huge amount of sand. You know, okay. it's a significant amount of sand or even dirt or whatever, you know. It's like when you cast, again, if today, if you cast metal, you can make a sand or a clay form. And then yeah, all you uh -huh. do is you just, inside that form, you have some kind of powder or something to loosen it off the surface. Mm -hmm. And then you cast the thing and then you would basically destroy the form. Right. You know, so right. same kind of idea here, potentially. The biggest thing that makes this less feasible, let's say, yeah. and then just cutting the stones and moving them and whatever. Scott, I think you're right in that I'm not saying this is how archaeology should be done or even how it is done necessarily, but I do agree that sometimes it can come across a little bit like we see these stones in this formation and we, because they must, because, because they exist there, we assume, well, 
it must have happened this way. They they must have had the ability to make this stuff because it's there. You know, so we know they were able to make these stones because they were there. And so we then just look for explanations that kind of fit a preconceived notion we have of how they would do this. And so it's hard, I think, from the outside looking in again to say, well, that's makes this, you know, the, the chiseling and or the moving and chiseling theory more viable than, say, the casting of a geopolymer theory. Thinking that the geopolymer method is too complex versus, say, the chiseling and moving stones is too complex, I think it's sort of a modern-day misreading of how technologies progress, right? Because we all think about civilizations like the game civilization, where there's like a technology tree, you know, (laughs) where we get stone working, and then we get metal working, Uh and then we get, you know, and so we, I think, in the West especially, think about things happening in the same progression that's a Europe progressed and there's no reason that has to be the case making concrete isn't that much more complex than making metal than making you know complex chisels and and stone working and things like that so it goes back to the simplest explanation right occam's razor the the Mm. hate of all non-skeptics right (laughs) but you know it kind of comes down to that the idea of what's the most simple explanation that fits this well and you know the guano thing the all of those other extraneous pieces we think that they were able to make concrete but then are we not also kind of assuming that they were like why are we assuming that they were smart enough about agriculture to know that adding extra guano wasn't helping right (laughs) you know right (laughs) that's the challenge here is you can kind of make it fit whatever you want and outside of us getting that pair of glasses that the Pope has that lets him see back into the future. Um, you know, we're not, we're not yeah. going to know. So, but it, I honestly, I think it's a really interesting case. I saw online that there was a class at MIT where they were actually making these geopolymers to test his theory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would love to know what happened to that. Like, did, what did the class find? Yeah. All I was able to find online was just that they were going to do this test, but I never found any follow up. Like, you know, and so the students made the concrete thing and their megalith fell down. You know, yeah. I, I oh, never no. saw and they all, any follow up. They were all disappeared to a black site right. to, you know, that's what always happens. <laughs> You've yeah. discovered the secret of they were whisked away. Yeah, to the, Bolivian, a, <laughs> the Bolivian government came and, and took them away because they were stealing their concrete technology. Bolivian government, we're going all the way complex. to aliens at this point. <laughs> Talking about mixing things together because that's how we find things out somebody mixed the wrong things together and they blew up ugh ugh blew up cave no do that again uh, sorry the, not even that they don't have articles in their language but here here's my point about the alloy okay what do you think of something like a copper arsenic nickel bronze alloy that seems it's not just making tin <laughs> it's not just making bronze no way saying it's too advanced for their culture at the time. I'm just saying that these people were experimenting with something and they happened upon something that worked. And that's also kind of complicated. You're dealing with high temperatures. You have to get it out of ore. Mm-hmm. You have to get the combinations right. You got to get the, the cooling right, the hammering, the ingoting, all that stuff. So how does that, something like that, when we're talking about how difficult or extraneous a lot of the pieces, the moving parts to making a geopolymer would be, that seems to be reflected in their sophisticated metalwork as well. Again, when Scott, when you brought this to me first, I think the first thing I sent back to you basically was like, every ancient alien theory is racist. 
is essentially right. what I said. And I was right. like, I don't know if this one's going to be any better. This is almost the opposite end of the spectrum, which is that, no, these civilizations were more advanced than we think. I honestly think forests, and again, I, I, I'm, I'm not an archaeologist, right? This right. is just uh, Chris, the chemical engineer turned podcaster, <laughs> making claims here about a field he knows nothing about. But That's what I doing. feel yeah. in my gut, sure. I think I've been arguing against UFO buffs long enough that I can right. make one crazy, unfounded claim. Sure. Um, <laughs> at, least, at least these days. <laughs> Go for I it. I honestly think that what we seem to find is that we like to look back at history and think that, you know, the people in ancient Egypt or Greece or Rome or, or the Tiwanakus or, or whatever were so much different than we are today. Mm-hmm. And really, it's just like a different, you know, they just didn't have Adidas. Right? Like there's, there's not <laughs> right. a huge difference yeah. between us and what they were like back then. We've just kind of become used to the technology and lifestyle that we have today. Mm-hmm. And so with a mixture of that mixture, say, of metals and things like that, like, yeah, it shows that they had at least a beginning, um, or not a beginning, they had a relatively advanced understanding of metal and metal working and kind of metallurgy. It's likely, like you said, that when they found you could mix some things together mm-hmm. that uh, mix other things and sometimes you get unexpected results. I think that's definitely true. And a lot of the things that come from metallurgy have a lot of similarities, I guess I'd say, and there's a lot of chance for cross-contamination to make cement or to make right. other materials. One of the arguments for how kind of the civilizations in the Mediterranean first discovered a concrete-like material is uh, lime ash was getting onto uh, stones that they used to construct their buildings out of, and it was creating a layer of hardened stone. Right. And they were kind of like, why is this happening? Because they were using the lime for something else. And then they just kept experimenting essentially until they found, hey, if I mix this and this together, I can make something that can harden into something really nicely. Right. So, so many words to say forest, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's it's very interesting. It's one of those accidental things. Uh, I also, you just reminded me, uh, it's one of the explanations and and passages in uh, in Fight Club that I love is his explanation, uh, which may be apocryphal, but how soap was discovered is that ancient peoples, as they were cremating their heroes and and uh, and the dead, or maybe even human sacrifices, uh, the human fat was starting to mix with lime. And they noticed that uh, as that leached into the river, when they washed their clothes downstream, the, the clothes seemed to be cleaner. Uh, their fabric mm-hmm. seemed to be cleaner. And that was the the discovery of soap. Who knows? We keep talking about uh, the viewpoints of the different sciences and their proponents. And that I want to repeat what Dr. Edwin Barnhart said, who we, we model a lot of part one on because uh, he really encapsulates a lot of the, what is known by archaeology in the general sense. And he says, it's true that archaeologists still don't know how the people were able to move the stones or how they were able to fit them together so perfectly. It's also true that the age of the city is poorly understood. And he says uh, in, in his lecture that he has to admit that without giving credit to aliens or other nonsense, there are many aspects of Tiwanaku that remained unexplained. So that's where you have to leave it with archaeology, but you can't make these leaps of, of flights of fancy. From archaeologists' point, until they discover something more, I like that they have to leave it where they just don't know. 
It's honestly why we don't do a lot of archaeology episodes on Mad Scientist because the, the endings are just <laughs> not, not satisfying. You know, he just always yeah. ended like, I don't know, maybe. Right. maybe. Well, that doesn't stop us. You guys are the masters <laughs> at that. I'm going to lay down some crazy speculative chemistry nonsense woo on you right now, Chris, while we have you. But I just happened to come across this idea as I was poking around trying to find examples of what you were talking about while you're doing it. And Scott brought up the importance of guano. And so just reading from the page here, which is which is interesting because there, there's a relevance right here. Uh, guano, this is just from the wiki page, is the accumulated excrement of seabirds and bats. So Scott and I were talking like, does it is all birds or just, just bats in caves? Where are there bat caves around there? Well, uh, it goes on to say, as a manure, guano is highly effective fertilizer due to its exceptionally high content of nitrogen, phosphate, and potassium key nutrients essential for plant growth. Here we go to the, the crazy part. Guano was also, to a lesser extent, sought for the production of gunpowder and other explosive materials. Now, what I will uh, posit here is that, yes, it's like uh, fertilizer and uh, AMFO. It's a uh, ammonium nitrate for, and fuel oil. And that, uh, that you buy a lot of fertilizer, you're going to end up on a list these days. And because it's an easy and but very potent explosive. So earlier when you were talking about the chemicals in the possible geopolymers and with concrete and needing a fixative, and I was thinking about uric acid. Okay, so that's a component of, uh, of guano. And then uh, Scott and I were also talking about this earlier from the Audubon.org website. Why is bird poop white? Well, uh, it says here, the answer lies in the fact that birds, unlike mammals, don't produce urine. Instead, they excrete nitrogenous wastes in the form of uric acid, which emerges as a white paste. And uric acid doesn't dissolve in water easily. Hence, its ability to stick to your windshield like blobs of white plaster. Okay, now here's the crazy part, if that wasn't crazy enough. One of the aspects, and this, again, this is why I'm telling Scott, let, let this go, because this also wraps up one of the, the uh, uh, ancient technology, ancient alien theory, perhaps uh, bents on this, is that people who have observed the Pumapunku ruins site will say, here you have these massive Lego-like blocks, intricately cut, uh, that were stacked, and this thing must have been stout, as my grandfather would say about a, a good building, very stout. But now it looks to some people like these stones, massive as they were, were cast asunder from a possibly central radiant explosion point. Now that gets us into one of the, 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 the far out theories is that somehow perhaps there was a massive explosion that scatter these stones because to them it looks like a debris field rather than a dismantling or a disorderly or just even uh, riders because some of the stones appear to be scorched. Some claim that the the stones and maybe and you can maybe speak to this that there might be some claim at the pyramids that there is a a bowing, a concaveness to some of the stones or a warping or somehow there's a distortion to it which could be explained by a massive explosion and then you wonder well to move these kinds of stones that would have been a massive explosion so i propose could this be guano related i mean again in theory if you're storing lots of guano right and it gets wet and then there's urine in the area and there's other stuff there yeah. maybe you could make an explosive by mistake Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I would wonder, though, again, is explosives are one of those technologies that once we found them, we immediately turned them into warfare. 
Yeah. Forrest, maybe you just discovered exactly, you know, what what happened to the Tiwanaku, right? They just exploded <laughs> themselves to, to destruction. Right, right. Dude, it's interesting, man. I mean, maybe, maybe. <laughs> it's crazy. I'm, I'm th- I thank you guys, though, for making me, putting me back on an, every time I talk to you guys, I end up on an FBI watch list. I, our, our scroll history, our uh, search histories have doomed us. Uh, but they're so weird. People are like, okay, they're not up to anything. They're just weirdos. Right. Well, wait. So <laughs> before we let you go, Chris, what I'd like to do, and it will be relatively brief, is read excerpts from the conclusion on uh, Professor Davidovitz's paper here and just see what your final thoughts are. Does that sound okay to you? Sure. Conclusion. The thin section of a sample taken from the Pumapuku Red Sandstone Monument shows grain boundaries made of a thick, fluidal, red ferrocylate matrix. To our knowledge, this feature is, and I guess that's an important qualifier there, to our knowledge, this feature is very unusual in sandstone formed geologically. It represents a unicum, which I had to look up yesterday, it just means a one-of-a-kind event, I guess, and supports the idea of artificial sandstone geopolymer concrete. Complementary scanning electronic microscopy and EDS. I don't know what's EDS, Chris. Do you elemental dispersive spectroscopy? Thank you. Uh, elementive, just what Chris wow. said. Analysis for sodium, magnesium, aluminum, silicone, potassium, calcium, and iron. And yes, I knew all those symbols from the periodic chart. Suggests that the Kalamarka site, uh, which is one that he identified, is the source for Pumapunku megalithic blocks. The megalithic slabs of between 130 and 180 tons, um, and those are not metric tons, right? Or is, what is it when it's got the E? Oh, that that is the long ton. I just looked the this up. So ton. it's T-O-N-N-E, or the metric tons, like which is a uh, uh, thousand kilograms. Yes. Okay, right. Okay, good. 2,024, something about that, uh, pounds, yeah. Good, yeah. good. I managed to sneak a joke in there nobody heard or laughed at. <laughs> so these were cast 1,400 years ago. To make their geopolymer sandstone concrete, the builders may have transported finely weathered, kalinitized sandstone from the Kalamarka site and added foreign elements such as natron, sodium-2, what's that, Na2CO3. Sodium carbonate. Sodium carbonate, oh, thank you. Extracted from Laguna Cachi, a small lake located south of the Great Solar de Uni in the Altiplano in Bolivia. However, the most controversial aspect of the Pumapuku site is found in puzzling smaller items made of andesitic volcanic stone. Our study demonstrates that these architectural components were fashioned with a wet sand geopolymer molding technique. The scanning electron microscope study of this gray andesite shows the presence of organic matter. And then parenthetically it says, it could be the geopolymer binder. And that's what I was saying earlier about how he talks about how that shouldn't be present in a volcanic rock. We have carbon, nitrogen, and mineral elements. The existence of amorphous organic matter is very unusual, if not impossible, in a volcanic stone. It was also detected in the optical thin section studies. It is a unicum and supports the idea of artificial andesite geopolymer concrete. To make geopolymer andesite concrete, the builders may have transported non-consolidated volcanic tuff, which is an andesite stony material having the consistence of sand, from the Serocopia site and added an organo-mineral geopolymer binder manufactured with local ingredients. Surprisingly, almost done here, this study demonstrates that the Pumapuku builders mastered two geopolymer concrete methods, namely A, one in alkaline medium for the red sandstone megaliths. This technology is familiar to modern material scientists and civil engineers and is in line with knowledge of the traditional method of producing geopolymer concrete. Or B, 
The second, an acidic medium for the gray andesite structures is based on the use of organic carboxylic acids extracted from local biomass and also the addition of guano. It has been successfully replicated in our laboratory with modern chemicals in order to test the validity of the chemical mechanisms involved in the new geopolymeric reactions. In the absence of contrary evidence, the present conclusions are sound, and the Pumapunku red sandstone megalithic slabs and gray andesite sculptures are made of ancient geopolymers. This kind of study could provide data on the long-term crystallization mechanisms and mineralogical evolution of geopolymer molecules. In addition, the next step of our study will be to gather enough sample in order to implement carbon-14 dating and provide the exact age of the monuments. So, Cogs, when you hear this <laughs> conclusion, yeah. and you've already said some of these things, you're like, I don't know why there couldn't be organic material in mm -hmm. the volcanic, even drilling. Now, they did drill down into it and find that material, which they're saying, you know, shouldn't have been there because it's, you know, it was lava. And then it was formed after it was lava. But I mean, how do you feel about, do you feel like there's a lot of leaps in that conclusion or, yes. you know, what do you think? I do. So okay. his paper is completely based off of SEM, which is scanning electron microscopy and EDS. Which again was, what was that again? Elemental dispersive spectroscopy. So the basic idea behind those methods is, so SEM is just, it's a, just a powerful microscope. EDS is basically using the electrons. So an electron microscope, what it does is opposed to a normal microscope that uses photons to see things. An electron microscope uses electrons. So it bounces electrons off a surface. And then based on how the electrons are detected, it makes up an image for you to see. Mm -hmm. Electrons, when they hit off a chemical surface, also release x-rays that depend on the element itself. And that's what EDS does then is it can tell based on the x-ray that comes off what element is there. SEM is not a good characterization technique. Like it's also used a lot seeing other kind of fields of near science, kind of science-ish stuff, right? So the UFO world has heard a lot about SEM analysis right now because of like Jacques Vallée and the materials right, that he works on. The problem with SEM is it's sort of like looking at one rock and another rock and trying to say, like, which one is the most real rock? <laughs> yeah. Like, you're never, yeah. you know, if you look, if you've ever seen an electron or if you've ever seen a microscopic image of, like, say, what sand looks like or what a rock looks like underneath it, there is so much variation in natural materials that it is impossible to characterize them by SEM in that kind of way. When I publish papers on material science, and when you read papers on material science, SEM is kind of used as like a way to get a pretty cover image, but it's never used for real characterization hmm. because it's like going, going on Google street view and looking at like one area really zoomed in. Like you're looking at your street on Google street view and trying to say that the rest of the material must look like, like the whole earth must look like that street. You're so zoomed in. There's no way for you to get a sense of what the whole material looks like. Number one. And number two, there is no way on God's green earth that he has looked at enough rocks to say definitively that every, you know, no other rock looks like this, but ones that are made with geopolymers. There's just no way. Right. So right. that is a huge leap. The other thing he's saying there is, um, and this is actually another really common science-ish argument, is the elements that he's seeing there are so, like EDS is considered a qualitative technique, not a quantitative one. 
there's a lot of error in EDS analysis generally, even in really good ones. And so it's all often not used to make the case that like, oh, there's this much stuff here versus this other stuff. You know, I have a paper published where I use EDS to get a general sense to say like, look, there's titanium in this material, right? But the error bars on EDS are huge, you know, plus or minus 10%. The problem is that if he had the ability to do better studies <laughs> that would prove his point, he probably would publish them, you know? Yeah. yeah, the SEM stuff, I mean, the presence of a grain boundary or this kind of unexpected matrix of stuff in the rock is interesting, potentially. But rocks are like, all kinds of rocks are just mixtures of random stuff. You know, like rocks are mixtures anyways. So let me say this too. It would be different if he was saying or showing there is a regular matrix of material around this rock that looks like it was designed or something. But what he's saying is there are random globules of stuff. Random globules of stuff is like nature's favorite way to put stuff together. Right. <laughs> we're, right. we're random globules of stuff mixed. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. it's a really interesting, cool idea. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to take anything away from it. I do think, though, that it's kind of funny. On his own website, he says this. So Professor Joseph Davidovitz was born on March 23rd, which is really close to my birthday, March 25th, and everyone oh. buying me presents. Yes, um, happy birthday. He is known by the scientific community for being the inventor of geopolymer science. The general public recognizes his work on archaeological science. <laughs> so it's kind of a funny jump. Like the scientific community thinks I'm really good about this thing. No right. archaeologists agree with me, but I've been on I've been on some crazy conference circuits before. Right. Kind of a funny right. thing. So you know, it's <laughs> yeah. yeah. If if we find evidence of like large mixers or something, or mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if we found out that his idea is correct. Yeah, there's a possibility there, right? You're you're giving it room to be real. Right? Yeah, like you said though, there just isn't enough. Um, there's not enough there to shift the paradigm, right? Of what we think is true, and so there's no reason to make that jump yet. Right. Right. Gotcha. So gotcha. in the in the end, ultimately. There's a little bit of supporting evidence for every theory, but no clear winner at the moment, right? Would you agree with that? I, I don't know enough about that's the yeah. thing. That's the other yeah. part of this too, right? Is you know we're not archaeologists, so I have to go with what the archaeologists say is the most likely explanation. Most likely, but those are still most likelies. They're not. Yeah, still they're, they're have... still most likelies, you know. But again. I'm not going to listen to my cousin Lisa when she thinks I have a cancerous mole. <laughs> well, listen, <laughs> you know, no. Yeah, listen, on the on the scale of like the lizard people built Puma Pumku to <laughs> we right. carried them up the hill on the back on our backs with like llamas carting stuff or whatever. Yeah. This is like right next to we carried them up the hill, I would say for me. I think this <laughs> is the most likely of the unlikely options or the non-standard options, I guess I'll say. It's like all the great wonders and mysteries architecturally of the world. Uh, there's a lot of theories and then there's always, there, a new one comes up. This one doesn't, you know, that's why I like this story is that this one, uh, people think that, uh, oh, they channeled some of the uh, the lake water from Titicaca and were able to create canals and channels on reed boats and get the stones on those. And then and it's like, okay, uh, that's what we got to go with, but nothing's concrete. It's just another theory. It's just another hypothesis. You just said and, nothing's you know, concrete. 
Nothing's concrete. I love to. Th- yeah. Oh, you got that. No, there okay. is concrete. That's what oh, we're saying. Okay. I, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. You just have to leave it there, and and nothing. This is the the sad part. Is nothing. Most everything we come across in this earth, like uh, same thing with the Gobekli Tepe, is that uh, it's a fraction of what's been unearthed. Gobekli was by accident, like a lot of these things are, especially in Egypt. Uh, it was, it's always a donkey that steps in a hole, and then we discover the, the tomb of Osiris. And there's You're channels. digging in the wrong place, Indy. <laughs> <laughs> I am the Sultan a... of the Sea. Well, uh, Cogs, we want to thank you for coming back on the show. Thank you so, so very much for your time tonight. We're going to let you go. And uh, please, again, remind folks where they can find the Ma- the Mad Scientist podcast. You can find us on the madscientistpodcast.com. We're on Spotify, all of your other podcast players. If you want to really not like me, you can follow my hot takes on Twitter. Uh, and, uh, oh, those and yeah, are good. Yeah. Check us out. The Mad Scientist Podcast. And then Marie, my co-host's show, is Whatever Remains. So please yes. check us out. Also, your ska band Guano Bomb is on Bandcamp. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, Guano yeah. Bomb coming out Guano. shortly. We're going to make Bomb. all concrete instruments. We're going to sound pretty rough. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be great. All right, man. Nice. Well, we're we're going to let you go. Do us a favor and ask uh, your cousin Lisa what she thinks about this and get back to us. With I'll it, let okay? you know. I'll definitely let you know okay. for sure. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Josh Herod. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. All right, a huge thank you to Dr. Chris Cogswell for joining us again. Uh, Thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time. Again, find his podcast, The Mad Scientist Podcast, anywhere you get podcasts. Also with his co-host, Marie Mayhew, who has her own show called Whatever Remains. We're huge fans and friends with uh, both of them. So find those wherever you get your podcasts. Mm. So before we go to the next steps, we're getting into our conclusions and final theories here. And there's a lot of folks that... (laughs) The people that are mm-hmm. hate listening to us oh. were just waiting to jump on us about ancient aliens, I possibly. Uh, they might be. I don't know. Maybe they're not. And by the way, love you guys, too. We love anybody that's listening. Thank you for listening. Mm. We've got to talk about the ancient aliens thing a little bit. I guess where I want to start is that, you know, history's mysteries, Giorgio Sukulos, who we do not know. We know lots of people that know him. Yeah. He's on the convention circuit, all that stuff. Seems like a wonderful guy, by the way, before you vilify him and for all mm-hmm. the things he says and does. We don't know him personally. He did a cameo in something, such a good sport about himself. I can't remember what it was, but it was a cameo where he kind of made fun of himself. Which uh, I, yes. It's like, if you can do that, you're a good person. But, yeah. but in general... I wanted to see their take on this. So we watched the Ancient Aliens episode, which was on YouTube for free, about Pumapunku. And he went there, and there was a lot of analysis, and he talked to some very polarizing folks in the field of the ancient alien theory, Mm -hmm. which was to be expected. But a lot of his analysis, archaeologically and from a scientific standpoint, there were a lot of good points that he made. Right. You know, he talks about the site. He talks about the faces that are found in the walls of the mm-hmm. courtyard there. There's 175 of them that I think have been unearthed. That's not a number that means anything because there's yeah. probably a lot more that still are buried. He makes some observations that these faces, oh, could they be alien? I was, yeah, no. Well, <laughs> some of them are weird looking, but it could be some of them it are could weird, be stylized they, art. Yeah. There's gargoyles are weird looking. There's a building in downtown Asheville, North Carolina with a thousand crazy faces on it, which yeah. I think was the... Can, the guy that built it was angry at people he borrowed money from or something. I can't remember. I've taken the <laughs> tourism tour. But anyway, they're all designed to make fun of of whoever 
he was involved in the construction of the building. Yeah. Anything can be going on when crazy faces are put on a building. Right. I don't think that's aliens. There's other ideas. It's like, oh, is this a landing pad and all of that? Mm. And here's what my takeaway, with with all due respect to Giorgio Sukulos, who I would love to meet someday, my takeaway was that when you look at this episode, there's a lot of really interesting ideas in it and archaeological ideas about its origins and what it means in the big picture of humanity and civilization. And then there's it's sprinkled with these suppositions or possible ideas about ancient aliens theory that seem a little bit out of left field, at least when applied to this particular topic. Mm-hmm. And I'm not categorically denying the idea that we could have been visited in the past. I I don't know that that's the case, but I am saying that I'm not necessarily on board with the reason that this is such a magnificent site is because aliens came down and brought the knowledge and gave it to folks that were too primitive to do it themselves. I am not on board with that. And I am not necessarily on board, this is just me, Mm. with ancient aliens being involved with this site in any way. I Mm -hmm. don't think that's what's happening, but I do believe in the idea of sophisticated lost technology. I believe in what we talked about Mm. with COGS, about the idea of maybe they figured out a way to use plants to break down and soften stone, turn it into a slurry that they could then transport in an easier way. Much like, and I talked about this, Heist, or which was the Casa du Papel, the uh, the Spanish series (laughs) on Netflix, where they, spoiler alert, this Boy, I probably shouldn't go here. They robbed the place, actually? That's yeah, what they robbed. That's a, that's a, that's I, don't, I don't want to do okay. it. I don't want to spoil, but the, there's a similar idea to how do you move something monumental? You you break it down. So right, right. there's a whole lot of philosophy behind this, and I don't think we got into it so much with Cogs mm-hmm. as I wanted to, but one of the things that is uncovered in the research was the idea of the guano being the binder for this concrete from this era, and that they would have to go down to the coast and get the guano. It would come back on these llamas, and it was passing Manquigua, I believe it was. There was a mm-hmm. there was a trail that went through there, and they know that there was a lot of guano trade, and they were, as we said with Cogs, they were, they were consuming more guano than they should have been. And of course, his point was like, eh, well, you don't really know what that means, because he made a really great point, which I loved when he said it. And I was like, oh, yeah. He was like, they had the raised mound agriculture, Mm -hmm. and they had their own fertilizer in the ditches with the plankton and the fish that they could recycle up onto there. So there's no reason they would have needed all that guano. But he's like, we don't know that they knew that. They might have known that guano worked, so why not bring more guano? They might have brought 10 times the guano they needed because they knew a little guano worked. (laughs) And that's a really good point. We don't know. Here's the other point, though, that they seem to know now. Earlier when we talked about the unearthing of the archaeological treasures at the bottom of Lake Titicaca near the uh, Island of the Sun, Isla del Sol, and that Tiwanaku was a major trading spot. It had a lot of influence, and there was a lot of wealth being passed there. That's why, you know, some of the stuff to a degree, like we said, when they talk about the elites, there's money and wealth involved and status, but it wasn't through military might, as we now, as I think, it was about trade and spirituality. Yes. A lot of stuff was coming through. Like we talked about those shells, the spondylus shells. You know, those are 1,200 mile away artifacts. And that means those are transported over a long distance as something very valuable. And there you go. If uh, guano is that valuable, and it was, that place was guano central. <laughs> the nest of the Peruvian booby. And yes, yeah, so it's another name. I know this, this series is just rife with joke games, but that's <laughs> so the name wait, of the bird. Wait, wait, wait. Let me just, it's the name of the wait. seabird. So the Peruvian booby yes. lives in proximity to Lake Titicaca. 
Well, they're, they're along the coast here. It's a long way away. Yeah. Is this a blue-footed booby? No, no. This is the, the, the Peruvian booby. Uh, the point uh -huh. here is that their nest is almost pure guano. So it's like sitting in a ring, a hardened ring of guano that you can mine, that you can farm. Okay, right. Okay, so the Peruvian booby has a nest of pure guano and it lives near Lake Titicaca. I just wish my son could be hearing this episode right now. Well, that's why we don't have him in there because we're trying to keep down the giggles, okay? Yeah. We're trying to be mature about this. <laughs> uh, but there's other birds too. The guane cormorant as a huge yes. producer of quality guano. Here's just a little something from the, the wiki entry on guano, okay? The word guano originates from the Andean indigenous language Quechua, which refers to any form of dung uses agricultural fertilizer. Archaeological evidence suggests the Andean people collected guano from small islands and points off the desert coast of Peru for use as a soil amendment for well over 1,500 years. That's at our time span, okay? And perhaps as long as 5,000 years. It's known about for a long time in its use. Spanish colonial documents suggest that the rulers of the Inca Empire greatly valued guano, restricted access to it, and punished any disturbance of the birds with death. The guane cormorant is historically the most abundant and important producer of guano. Other important guano-producing species off the coast of Peru are the Peruvian pelican and the Peruvian booby. People have even gone to war over guano, the countries of Bolivia and Peru, yeah. because it's a precious resource. And whoever right. controls the resource, a lot of money involved. Well, when you think about that value and the value being ascribed to it, it makes you wonder how far back the power of what they could do with it goes in their culture. Why does it have so much value? That, that may be something earned over generations and generations for all its various uses. And one of those uses may be masonry. Yeah. That's a possibility, right? right? I mean, we have, to, we have to consider that. Well, again, this is uh, reading from the entry here. The Guano Age, <laughs> there was an age of guano, ended with the War of the Pacific, 1879 to 1883, which saw the Chilean Marines invade coastal Bolivia to claim its guano and saltpeter resources, saltpeter being an element of gunpowder. Knowing that Bolivia and Peru had a mutual defense agreement, oh, that's the, uh, yes, here's the, the actual facts on that, folks. Chile mounted a preemptive strike on Peru, resulting in its occupation of the Tarapacá, which included Peru's Guano Islands. And then with the Treaty of Anson in 1884, the War of the Pacific ended. Bolivia ceded its entire coastline to Chile, which also gained half of Peru's guano income from the 1880s and its Guano Islands. The conflict ended with Chilean control over most of the valuable nitrogen resources in the world. Chile's national treasury grew by 900% between 1879 and 1902, thanks to taxes coming from the newly acquired land. So there you go. Well, and this is how wars, yeah. uh, or why wars are fought, I should say. Yeah. So over guano. This whole idea, though, you know, where things become racist and problematic. Yes. I believe is, is when you come out and say directly, well, these people aren't smart enough to have done this. So it had to be somebody else. But I also want to say this. I don't think that necessarily applies to all people who believe in the ancient astronaut idea or the concepts. Because I think you have to say directly these people are inferior in your mind. You could say that these people were where they naturally were in their development, but something came in, an external force, and it could be other tribes. It could be other people like them, but another culture, which may have happened with the Tiwanaku and the Inca. Or the Inca coming before, developing further, becoming more of a state than the Olmec. 
But the Olmec being younger, I guess, uh, as far as their timeline goes, but more advanced in some ways, they influenced the older Inca. So what you had was a pre-existing culture right. that was influenced by a culture that came along later, right. but had a more sophisticated civilization or ideas of civilization, or even if not more sophisticated ideas that appealed to the pre-existing yes. culture, which then adopted them and wound up outliving the culture that brought the new ideas forth. That's what's complicated about it, right? These are people from the same continent, essentially, okay? Yeah. But what we're saying is that the great cities of the Inca really didn't happen until their, their contact and influence with the Olmec, even though that they rose up, you could say. I mean, people existed, of course, in the area, but what we're counting here is aspects of civilization and its influence in the area. And what we say specifically about the Tiwanaku is that it was very influential. But what we're not saying is that it had to be delivered from people on UFOs or even something, as we see in the ancient aliens, making a nod to perhaps Zechariah Sitchin's idea of ancient Sumerians and uh, the Anunnaki and that's uh, a whole kettle of corn there, a can of yeah. worms, kettle of worms. Some people have linked that to uh, the development of some of the technologies down here. My thing is that, uh, well, if they're ancient aliens, was the alien technology also ancient? Or as I think I said in part one, could they have come down and just given them all iPhones? There's no reception. Right. But like, here's right. a device. You can communicate with each other locally. And it's isn't it cool? It's holographic because we're aliens and it doesn't matter that this is 1,500 years ago. We're still really advanced. Or were we just more primitive aliens? I don't know. That's what I'm I want to get here. back to it, one of my yeah. original points is I don't think aliens were involved in Tiwanaku or or Pumapunku right. in any way. Because here's here's what we see. This is what we have to go on. I still am open to the ideas of aliens possibly having visited us. Because here's the thing, right. and this begs a whole other question, and we're really going, we're already going off the deep mm -hmm. end here, but like, mm -hmm. if you refuse to believe that aliens have ever visited us from any reason from anywhere, whether it's interstellar space or another dimension, or uh, one of my favorite theories, they are already here, they just live under the ocean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they pop out when they need to, mm -hmm. to uh, check in on us, or right. control us, or whatever. Whatever the idea is, if you're open to any of those ideas, that there's ever been visitation, then it's not right to say, well, it couldn't have happened thousands of years ago. Yeah. Because for a technology that sophisticated thousands of years ago is seconds, less than a second, a right, thousandth right, of a right. second. And you're talking about uh, the, these, for them to develop that fast, this could be a culture that's been developing for 100,000 years. Right. So it's, it doesn't make sense to say, oh, well, yeah, I believe in aliens, but I don't think they ever came back and interfered with anyone before me. Right. Or they didn't exist until 1950. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's another one of those vanity situations. But then there's, of course, there's probably people who are like, I don't believe in aliens at all. And not right. only that, they certainly didn't influence ancient cultures. Right. And that's okay, too. You and I, I, I read to you, I think you were doing something else. I read to you, uh, we always look at Brian Dunning's articles to see if he's written something about one of the topics. And he had... Brian Dunning is our is one of our very old and dear friends that we've never met or communicated, <laughs> communicated with. Yeah. He may follow and he might not me. Call us. No. Yeah, we were caught up in some Twitter things, and he was like, unsubscribe, I think, is the only thing he's ever said. It may not have been about us. I think that was over the Jalowit No, it was doc. other people. Yeah, that was the yeah. Jalowit doc photo uh, talking yes. about Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan. And I think he was mm -hmm. like, yeah, I'm out of here. But, but that goes to a point. I, I can't remember what he thought about the whole Amelia thing, but the Occam's razor, as Chris talked about here in the, in the touchstone, 
the lodestone for uh, skeptical thought, a lot of the times people will say, is that it's Occam's razor, the most simple explanation. The simple explanation being they just were good at cutting stones and it just took them a lot of time, as we said with Chris, time and pressure, yeah. generations. Yeah. Just they had some technology. Well, you you wonder about that though. It's like you have to leave some things. It's like, well, they must have had pretty good chisels and saws that we don't have any you know evidence of now. So you're assuming right. that they just must have because these other things like geopolymers, I think, and uh, some other maybe stone softening, like that seems a little far out. That's impossible. So what I would say in Brian Dunning's article here, now he has a podcast called Skeptoid yes. and a website for each of the episodes like we do. And it's S-K-E-P-T-O-I-D-C. If you're hate listening to us, you're going to love that show. <laughs> uh, well, it is but the, it's a, it's it's a, a good common show. sense. Yeah, well-researched. Very digestible, interesting reads. He's a good writer. And uh, he has an article titled The Non-Mystery of Pumapunku. And just to sum up, this you have to look everything through the filter of personal belief of the person coming through. Now, he doesn't believe in aliens at all. I don't believe that he believes in aliens or UFOs, right. at least as an explanation for anything. So yes. that's where he's coming from. It's just pure... Uh, what we know, right? Empirical, I guess, evidence of of what we can determine just through our current senses and and uh, evidence. So he's coming at it like that. And, you know, like I'll say one thing that he said is like, well, it's not Atlanteans as he, and he lumps that into non-human intervention with this technology at, at Pumapunku. Uh, but really, I think Atlanteans are human. They're just, <laughs> that could be lumped into more uh, lost human technology. They're not aliens. And they're certainly right. not all just white folks. <laughs> they were different, as we covered in our Edgar Casey thing, that yes, there's there are Atlanteans, but those are some of those were people of color too. They had yes. their their variety then, but that technology and all that they did was lost. But as we said in part one, we're not talking about flat screen TVs here. We're talking about maybe crystals and crystal energy or whatever, you know, however woo it is. It's just another development in a different way. I was going to bring this up. Remember Prometheus? I yeah. think they did a good job. Uh, the aliens there, it's like, well, those are humans, but their technology is a lot different. It developed in a different fashion, style, and method. And like, they don't have videotape like we do, but they have this gel that it has photon particles in it, and you can play the gel, and it, it plays back. And so the throughout the ship, they can see the holograph playback of the uh, these other humans, these other large humans before, and what happened when the ship... Uh, crashed and they they got into trouble and their technology looks different but it's more advanced than ours so it's an interesting concept to me it's like it doesn't look like the ship from alien or star wars it doesn't look like any of that they tried to make it look different as if their technology evolved on a different track with a different set of stylistics or or that's how it was developed what i would say about uh, brian's point though is that he he is saying like look it's kind of a disservice and it's illogical to say that this had to develop from some external source and certainly aliens yeah. because there's no evidence of that. We only have, can also go by what we've evidenced in our research and there's nothing that fantastic that is way outside of the thinking. I believe it is advanced technology of a very earthy kind <laughs> involving yes. plants, rocks that are yeah. there. Metallurgy yes. from smelting of local minerals from ores and things like that is that things that were ahead of their time. Yes, but not out of this world. That's what we found here. But left with that, I think there's two remaining interesting hypotheses on how they did what they did. Because 
Uh, again, you have to look back to what does archaeology say? Archaeology says we don't know. We, we just don't know. We don't have enough information yet. It's going to take a lot of excavation. So right now, we just know what we see. Now, this is the amazing part of this, is that what they left behind, that in itself is amazing. Yeah. When you look at the blocks, when you look at the, especially the andesite or the volcanic ones, right. and how smooth the surfaces are, and all the videos that we've seen on YouTube, we haven't had a chance to go there ourselves. We absolutely want to do that. But like when you see these, you're looking at this footage of these blocks that are, it's straighter and flatter than glass and very polished. It's very clearly not something that was chiseled. Right. It's perfect. It's perfect surfaces. Just to finish up Mr. Dunning's article here, uh, his conclusion is, uh, so once again, we have an accomplishment by ancient craftsmen who some paranormalists have attempted to discredit by attributing their work to aliens. This is not only irrational, it's a non sequitur conclusion to draw from the observations. Most people don't know how to intricately cut stones because those are skills we haven't needed for a long time. We've had easier ways to make better structures for a long time. But this argument from ignorance, that just because we don't know how to do it, nobody else could have figured it out either, is an insufficient explanation. Simply say that you don't know, instead of invoking aliens. This is not only the truth, it accurately represents the findings of science so far. And perhaps, most importantly, it leaves the credit for this wonderful contribution to humanity where it belongs, with the Tiwanaku themselves. So I'm, I'm on board with that. I'm on board with that too. Most of that. I don't think it's necessarily an insult to speculate that there's an outside influence. I think it's just part of the process of trying to figure out how it happened. Right. And if you're a super open-minded individual, you might be like, okay, well, let's look at this. Like, could this have been this way? Could this have been that way? What, what if aliens did it? What if it, like, I don't know that you're insulting people when you're saying that, right, but I, right. but, but I also agree with uh, Mr. Dunning's assessment there and that final conclusion. And that's very interesting. But another thing I want to talk about here, and yeah. I, I know you have something else to say before we get to it, mm -hmm. but I want to talk about this discussion that they had with one of the Aymara elders on ancient aliens talking about right. what the local people, how they feel about their own culture, because God forbid we should actually talk <laughs> to somebody who's living yes. there. Yes. Yeah. To me, the, the more racist component is this all coming out and sitting from the outside I know. and looking at it on the internet and making our conclusions and then saying that their cultural observations and what their elders think aren't important because they can't be assessed scientifically, that to me is the ultimate insult. Well, it's it's an ironic racism in that that becomes uh, scientific hubris. Again, it's taking that Sherpa elder, and I think this must have been back in the 60s. Again, I, I, I love that story, but I, I can't remember the, the date. It was a while oh, ago. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, so they bring him, uh, you know, they bring the Sherpa elder to New York, and they take him to the Bronx Zoo, and he'd never been to America. I don't think he'd been to a zoo before, but he, the certain guy knows the animals from his area, right? And they're saying uh, they take him by the bear cage, and they said, there you go, that's a Yeti, right? Right? That's what you mean when you say Yeti. He's like, no, no, that's a bear. I know what a bear yeah. looks like. That's a bear. Then they happen to walk by the gorilla cage. He's like, that, right there, that's a Yeti. That's what a Yeti looks right. like. Not exactly, but that's, it's more ape-like. Right. There's a lot of hubris. We've talked about this before from people saying, well, you know, th those those myths of you yours. You don't know are, what you saw. Yes, those are, yeah. uh, anthropologically, they're very interesting and, and uh, they're very cherished, but you guys don't know what you're talking about scientifically. So. Well, exactly. Just for folks that are new to the show, or if you're listening and you haven't heard our back catalog, back in uh, December of 2017, we did a multi-part series on the Yeti, and we had uh, Dr. Daniel Taylor on who wrote a an amazing book about the Yeti called Yeti, the Ecology of a Mystery. So if you're interested in that at all, go look for that in our archives. 
so one of the things that happens is the, all, all these scientists come in and they come in from different cultures with different levels of education and they get off the airplane and they go there and they, they stay there and they look at just the scientific assessment. And I get that. I get that that's important. And if Cogs was on with us now, he might be like, well, this, you know, a part of that's the only thing that matters. But I disagree with that. I don't think it's the only thing that matters. I think the cultural components matter. What do the elders think? What do the stories say? If you can't put all that stuff into it, and if you're just disregarding it because it's not quantifiable or can't be specifically measured, then you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Those stories mean something. There's a kernel of truth there. That's where everything comes from. And to me, you should start with that stuff. And that's one of the things, you know, on Ancient Aliens... Mm -hmm. For example, here's the perfect example of it. You say, oh, well, I'm not watching that. It's Giorgio Suclos. He hosts that. Everything they say is stupid. It's That's dumb. That doesn't make any sense. Well, Giorgio Suclos went and spoke to an elder in the community living at Tiwanaku now today. Yeah. Or not today, whenever that episode was that we watched about this. His name was Rene Kispe. Yeah, yeah. And they had a translator there, and he talked about their origin stories and all the stories that center around not only Tiwanaku, but Pumapunku and the Isla del Sol and Isla de la Luna and, and the idea of the origins of the Incas, but where what happened before that. And they talked about a lot of things that were really fascinating. And one of the things that that elder brought up was the idea of the Watchers. Mm-hmm. That's a whole nother thing. Maybe, Forrest, you can talk a little bit, not to put you on the spot, yeah. but just like if you, if you were to tell our audience what the Watchers represent in... in... Well, well, this goes back to uh, the, the Book of Enoch and uh, yes. Enochian magic and his... not. Well, geez, I, man, I was thinking about this a little bit. I didn't want to go into it, but uh, Enoch supposedly had knowledge, advanced knowledge of agriculture and yes. earth sciences, you could say. And that knowledge was buried. We talked about this way back in Oak Island. It was that a nine-chambered underground kind of thing where knowledge is stored. At the bottom is the golden delta with the name of God on it. That's part of this. To your earlier point about what do the elders think, that's also part of it. There's also an, an anthropological and a cultural aspect of all of our knowledge of this place, which should be considered. Yeah, like you said, it's throwing the, the baby out with the bathwater because it doesn't fit into your puzzle here, or it's just not of interest to you. And I can understand that. But let's also find out what they think and, and what they're... Yeah, let's find out what they think. And how how does that frame what we're uncovering now? And so, right. because when you look at the archaeologists that first came to the area, one of the first ones was Poznansky. And Poznansky yeah. came to a whole lot of conclusions that today are apparently widely disregarded. Right. Now, are they disregarded because... It was the early days of archaeology, or are they disregarded because the approach now pays less attention to the cultural influences and the cultural knowledge that preceded the excavation? I, I think there's a tendency to yeah, is that you have a turn of the cent early turn of the century, turn of the twentieth century, Western European academics coming in who may have had a racist bent or lens to their viewing of what was going on and their interpretations. Just to finish, to get back to your point about the Watchers, uh, yeah, yeah, so the the idea, though, is that there were angels who were in charge of watching over the earth and early humans. They saw that the the daughters of men were lovely, and they came down and mated with them and created the Nephilim, or the Nephilim, which were a race of really awful, giant horrible beasts and people and hybrid and Goliath of David and Goliath has been speculated to have been uh, one of the Nephilim. 
and that you have these uh, now it created horrible beings that eventually had to be vanquished. And that ties into the Watcher lore, that there were, you could say, superhuman-type beings near the lake, and that's part of their creation myth. Yeah, and this is another thing i like to point out. If you're interested in giants and the Nephilim, we did a series called The Tall Ones, which you can find back in uh, late January and February of 2018 that talks about this stuff. All of these things tie together, and what happens in, in, in what we used to say on the show more often than we say now is that everything is connected. And it's not fair to disregard certain components of those connections just because they're outside the wheelhouse of your specific milieu. And that's the thing that, that I like to see when we look at these stories and, and we look at the, the scientific application. I do think it's important to also take into account the archaeological, the anthropological, the sociological, and cultural application too, and take all of that together. And and again, coming back to the uh, Rene Quispe, who they spoke to on Ancient Aliens, he talks about the Watchers. He talks about Viracocha, which everyone in the area talks about, obviously, because Viracocha is a god who created the first two Incans. But they're saying that that came up after the darkness, which we talked about this with Cogs just a few minutes ago. But they also talk about the Eagle Men, the court of Viracocha being Eagle Men. And Poznansky, that early archaeologist who spent 40 years, right. 40 years in the area. He didn't get off an airplane and come spend four or five years and go away and come back and all that in 20 years. away. The guy was there a long time. And he determined that on the gateway of the sun, that that was actually a calendar. Yeah. And when he did the math on figuring that all out, he determined that that calendar went back 24,000 years. Yeah. So now when you say that, and it's like, oh, I'm clicking stop on this podcast. <laughs> it's yeah. like... No, but wait, let's entertain that possibility. Let's entertain all these possibilities. He was there a long time. So again, and Sukolos points that out, and he says, you know, Poznansky today, a lot of people think, well, you know what, he's nothing wrong. He just, he didn't know everything. Right, he didn't have right. the bigger picture. But the problem for me is that their idea of the bigger picture, in air quotes, is to disregard everything but what you can measure in a test mm -hmm. tube. To me, that's the opposite of the big picture. The big picture takes it all into account. The spirituality, all of the possibilities, you don't have to embrace them all. You don't even have to believe in them yeah. all, but consider them all. Don't just write them off because they're outside of a tangible thing that you can write down on a logic table and make sense of. Well, that's one of the I introductions mean, to one of the papers you read from. Even within archaeology, there's a, a branch or a tradition of just looking at the buildings we can unearth. Just looking at the pottery and what does that mean and not taking into account, well, what's the meaning of this? What's the context? Well, why was this built? Is that just as important as, as how? And what's the meaning of this? Because, again, other than for archaeological or historical reasons of a chronology, it adds knowledge to us as humans today. That's what we were talking about earlier, is that they're just people look just like us to some degree. They, of course, it was olden times and they believed different things that we would find repulsive now, but they're still just people. And they did great things that lasted to this day. And why did they attempt that? How were they able to do that? And like I said, it's not necessarily aliens. On the other hand, yeah, if you're a UFO enthusiast, you believe that there's a possibility of aliens, had they met these folks? I don't know. We weren't there. You know, like we, There's no record of them doing that. Yeah. Now, here's the, the leap that some people might say. Now, and again, I don't think there's any reason I'm asking why. When I see ancient aliens in, a, in an episode, the whole thing is like, could it have been? Possibly. Could this be? Dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Leap yeah, fill yeah, in the yeah. blanks. 
that's the theme of the show. You can't get mad at them for positing that. Like, you might think it's silly, but like, that is the whole aim of the show. It's like, like the um, hieroglyphs where they're speculating what's shown is a giant light bulb of some kind. How do you get light down in there when you're working in the pyramid? Because you can't have torches. You're going to choke everybody out. You're going to burn up the oxygen in there. And they're thought like, well, you use mirrors reflecting sunlight. It's like you can't, mirrors won't go that. Disease, light. Yeah, you can't, you can't get uh, light down that far in there. <laughs> that's, by the way, just in case anyone's wondering, that's a reference to uh, the fifth element. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, and then you have other people saying, well, it's not a light bulb. Obviously, it's like a, an iris flower. And the, the bulb around it is representing the smell, the aroma of the, the beautiful flower. Like, okay, that's one take. So, Here we are. We're back at the green light on the dock. Right. And uh, the great Gatsby. It's like the only person who can tell you what that green light meant <laughs> yeah. is F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yeah. yeah. And for everyone else to sit around and talk about it for hours right. and hours and write papers and whatever, if you ha don't have direct knowledge of yeah. what he thought it meant, he's the one that wrote it and created it. That's who you need to talk to about it. Yeah. I mean, in this case, that's the theme of the show. You ask, what if this had alien contact? Well, and that's what we do, Yeah. to be fair. You went to the talk to the elders. It's like, well, they have their myths and there were eagle men. I don't know if that, that doesn't translate to aliens directly for yeah. me, but who, I, I don't know. Right. But you're in that camp where it's like, I believe it's possible that we could be visited by aliens. And if you believe that, then is it vain to think, well, they're only going to come right now while I was alive in the last hundred <laughs> well, years. Yeah. They're not going to come back during caveman times, no. or they're not going to come during Incan times, or they're not going to come during yeah. Denisovan times. No, any of that time is a possibility. Right. And how would that be recorded in pre-recorded history? Right. Everything is so unknown to you back then mm -hmm. anyway, you might not even take it as we would take it today. Because today we have an understanding of how hard it is to get here right. from anywhere else. Back then, everything that's happening is probably overwhelming. Yeah. It's all about just the presentation and everything. So you're putting words in people's mouths and thoughts in their heads, I think, if you're you're trying to lump people into whole camps broadly just based on a silly pop culture title. Yeah, the Eagle Men, you know, that could have been uh, Vera Coach's eagle men that is likely portrayed on the the gate of the sun but who knows what that means was it just mythical did they actually see some cryptids a lot of a lot of our listeners here like to believe in cryptids so the last thing i'll say is is don't judge something unless those exact words have been said about a particular case and in this case what we're going to say next is only based on what we have found out. Well, this is all speculation, but I think you have to start from what do we have to examine? And that's the stones. Those are the remaining pieces of uh, architecture and the artifacts that are left over that are so uh, baffling and so well done that they, they leave us with questions today. So here are the, as I see it, and uh, you jump in, if this makes sense to you, I ended up liking the idea of some kind of means of fabrication that then did have to use molds, forms, okay. building forms, yeah. because just yeah. for me, I like it because it answers a lot of questions because you start to look at, uh, again, just looking at what they, what they had, it's like, that's a bigger unknown, I think, when you say just really good saws and very skilled chisel men working yeah. at it for hundreds of years. I do believe as one researcher, Brian Forrester, who's got a, quite a few videos on YouTube, 
and he's written several books. We have those uh, linked on our website. One thing I will agree with him on is that I don't think it was that difficult for them. It's a lot of hard labor. Oh, yeah. I love that observation, he said. What they're doing here is so sophisticated that it must have been easier for them than it is to us. I mean, that's his implication. He didn't say that verbatim, but it's like, if you can make something this complex, clearly it's not difficult for you to do it. Right. Right. Which I thought was a fascinating observation. He was like, this is easy. This is easy for them. That's why these blocks have such sophisticated shapes. It's not hard for them that they, somehow this is easy. Now the question is, is the definition of easy, as Cog suggested, you know, generations and generations of of slaves working on it or kids yeah. working on it and then their dads did until their hands fell off and then their dads did it and their dads did it and, and 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 coming back to a book that we've referenced on the show a few times which I read and loved by Ken Follett called Pillars of the oh, Earth yeah. mm-hmm. which centers around a church being built over hundreds of years and that philosophy may be and of course that's historical fiction but he it's very well researched yeah. on his part and maybe that is what it is. It is just generations and generations doing something that seems monumental, using the adjective mm-hmm. form of that, because you know that even the most sophisticated person in the world couldn't accomplish it in their lifetime. You look at Gaudi in Barcelona, this church that took a hundred years to build right. well after he was dead because of his crazy, sophisticated, almost H.R. Geiger-esque architectural style. And so then when one when a person comes and looks at that and says, oh, well, you know, I'm only, crap, I've only got like a few decades here. Yeah. There's no way I could do that. Must have taken a miracle. It's not fair to say, oh, no, it, it, that, it took a miracle because no one could do it in one lifetime. But maybe you could do it in several lifetimes or several generations. On the other hand, maybe they found a technology that could get it done in one lifetime. And that yeah. technology was the geopolymer technology right. combined with, as Cog said, well, if you could do that... Why is Professor Davidovitz admitting that some of the stones are carved? Why are some of the stones in the pyramids, oh, that's granite. You can't do it with granite. Right. But you can do it with sandstone and you can do it with this. Could have been a combination of that? Could have been a combination yeah. of like, oh, I'm we're we're doing a geopolymer here. We're pouring this into a form. And then also we do have a hundred guys over here walking the Moai down the path to get it into, you know, where it needs to mm-hmm. go. Maybe it was a combination of those things. Yeah. We don't know. Why does it have to just be one of them, you know? Well, exactly. Like I said, it, it's uh, when people say Occam's razor, it's like, okay, I believe in simple explanations, but what about five or six or 10 or 20 all working in harmony? Yeah, exactly. Again, stop lumping things, because that's what humans do. You want to lump it all in, solve everything, label everything. One method. One yes. thing answers all questions. That's how we think because it's tidy, but that may not be the case. So what I'm going to lay down here on you is one of the possible ways I think uh, these stones may have been shaped. At least, again, I think there's several technologies perhaps that were indigenous and there might be a, uh, an explanation of how they how they learn this stuff because we talked about that with cogs too. You just trial and error over hundreds of generations, or do you get a boost? And not from aliens, but from nature. I'm going to explain that in a little bit. So on the one hand, you have the again <laughs> talking about a parallel to uh, Amelia Earhart. You have uh, to me, it's always been the crash and sink people. Like that's the chisel and hammer people. This is extremely familiar to us because we covered it for years and years. We haven't talked about it lately, but just like a little bit broader for folks that might just be hearing us now. The crash and sink theory is a very specific theory in the camp of all the different theories about what might have happened to Amelia Earhart that says she just ran out of gas and the plane went into the ocean and it sank and we haven't found it. Just I just wanted to give it like, so when you say crash and sink, I want to make sure everybody 
understands what that is. Yeah. That's the Occam's razor of the Amelia theories. Right, because obviously she didn't come back. Obviously, we don't know where the plane is. Obviously, that, right. that can't be found. So the most likely thing is that she got off course, she ran out of fuel, she crashed in the ocean, she is at the bottom of the ocean with her plane and Fred Noonan. Then there's a bunch of other theories. It's like, okay, well, what if that didn't happen? Could she have crashed but was picked up by the Japanese? That's Japanese capture theory. It's like, well, um, there are over 200 Chamorros. Those are native peoples of Saipan who claim to have seen a white woman and a white man around that time on the island, which was under Japanese control pre-World War II and not very likely. And you're going to discount them because it's like, well, that's not crash and sink. That's a crazy theory where she got picked up and was held until the end of World War II. We're not going there. So what I'm saying, the relationship here is that just smooth cuts somehow with, I don't know, uh, really good saws with a lot of time and, and some really precise chiseling done and, and just, as Cog said, time and pressure for generations it's less explainable. To me, that doesn't make as much sense as being able to form these stones in another fashion. So as we talked about earlier, the geopolymer, some kind of a type of concrete that was poured into forms. But here's another offshoot of that, okay? Now, you and I watched this video. You didn't seem to be as impressed. Not that I was totally impressed with it, but I thought it was interesting. And I, I thought about it last night. Clues at El Yante Tambo, The Lost Art of Stone Softening. I tripped onto this and made a note of it on a post-it at Christmas time. I knew we were going to cover this probably at some point. Didn't know when. Puma Punga was a subject. But I said, well, this is interesting. Well, so we talked a little while ago about the large six monoliths at Ollante Tambo, which have the, the tea sockets and the tea the cramps, which are found at Puma Punku. Now, some of the other things that don't make sense is that there are other types of shapes of cramp sockets found in Tiwanaku, like uh, L shapes, T shapes, double Ts. But it's all the same philosophy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You're pouring metal to to nail these things together. Now, the host of the channel, I think, is, is Harvey Turner. Now, I like at the very end, he says, I'm not a scientist. I'm just a guy who finds this really fascinating. And I like that. I like that aspect. It's kind of the, uh, the Michael Faraday thing, where it's just a yeah. guy, you know, he's not formally trained, but he's got some interesting ideas and he runs with them. It's a five-minute video that maybe sums up how this could have been done by taking clues of what is found at Ollante Tambo. These stones may not be as famous as what are found at Sexahiwaman or Tambo Mache. He believes at Ollante Tambo, there is proof that there are softening techniques of granite, rhyolite, andesite, and diorite, and that it was physically possible. This is one site that still has clues that other polygonal megalithic sites do not. It seems that people left during mid-construction. Whatever was going on, it was a little bit of a factory, outdoors, of course, and the construction there by these unknown builders suddenly stopped for some reason. They kind of left it where it was. So you can see the means of production a little bit by the stones and how they're laid out. Yeah, and that part of this I liked. I liked how he could see there's production areas. It's like it starts over here, it moves here, it moves here. It's like the obelisk uh, that didn't get finished being excavated and the Aswan region, which is yeah. uh, believed... Oh, you talking about the sand? Of, they, 
they built the sand ramp. Yeah, I, and I believe that was one of the remote viewing targets that you had a practice target for with uh, remote viewing, and you got some really amazing information off of yes. that. That was the place that you had to identify. But still, yeah. you can see sort of the production line. You can see the Henry Ford in it. It's here. <laughs> Possibly. But, and maybe it's not time to get there yet, there there was another part of it that, yes, you're right, it put me off the feet a little bit. So, But I'll wait before I say that. Yeah, here we go. Just going to uh, briefly go through and explain the, the process. Yeah. The construction there by these unknown builders just suddenly stopped. And that's why you can see possibly the outlay of this factory-like construction site left in mid-production. So he outlines seven stages of process for stone softening that, that he's come up with. One is what are called the tired stones. And those are the straight cut stones right from the quarry. These were on the delivery path from the quarry, six miles to the northwest of the site. And these stones are still, here's another thing though, that they're perfectly cut. Okay, so they're perfectly cut like rectangles, right? All great edges. So they had technology there of some kind to cut these stones from the quarry just like that. The second stage are the inline or ready stones. So what they did is on the other side of the build site, these ones were carried over and being prepared for shaping. Now, these are still straight cuts. And this is where they actually start to mold these into the shapes they need because all the stones, as you see at these sites, are not just perfect rectangles or squares. Number three, there are twisted or bent stones. This is kind of weird. You can see in the video, there's three in particular that are found at the site that are kind of curved or like a slightly twisted rectangle of soft clay or, or maybe a jello shot. <laughs> it's a, yes. They're slightly curved and twisted. And it's like, well, maybe you could, perhaps you could, you know, shave it and plane it like that to get that curve for some reason. But it doesn't fit anything else that, that's yeah, seen it. it looks like a perfect monolith that you picked up in your hands yes. if you were a giant, and you just twisted just a little bit. Yeah, just a tad. Yeah, and then put it back down. Right, yeah. it's a smooth bed. Uh, number four, there are dented stones. There are stones that have uh, these scoops at the edges of uh, some of the other. These are further along in the process. And what right. it looks like is that there's a spooned out dimple along one of these straight edges on the bottom of the stones. Now, his theory yeah. is that the purpose for these is that these were notches to keep the stones in place as they were being lowered into the stone softening solution. Number five, there's a stone that's found that he's called the cut stone. This is a big stone that was looks like it was in mid-production, but what was weird is this rock has a cut line like if you used a wire saw on it. Now, I don't know if you've seen those survival saws with the two rings and it's got the, the abrasive uh, cord. And what you do is if you're in a survival situation, you put a stick through each ring and you can use that as a saw. So it's like a wire saw as if it had been going through soft clay because there's a cut line. Now, what I will say is that it's a non-natural looking cut in this rock, not a crack. And not a fissure. Yeah, like a bandsaw is the kind of cut it looks yeah, like. Yeah, very thin though. Unlike maybe which, by the way, be find. careful, people. Bandsaw will take your finger off. You <laughs> won't even feel it happen. It'll just be gone. Yeah, yeah. they're they're that efficient. <laughs> but you know, unlike that, this thing doesn't look like a few millimeters in thickness. It's very thin. So that's another clue, perhaps. Number six, there are fitted stones, and these are stone walls where they are complete but fitted to such tight tolerances. That's where it's amazing. Now these are the ones, and you know, you've seen pictures of these, where it looks like a, not so much a jigsaw puzzle. There's sites with these all over the world, by yeah. the way. And I don't yeah. think they know how they were built in any case, in any of the places that you see them. But you look at them and everything is so fitted together. It's like, how did these, because they're irregular, but a perfect match. 
Yeah, it's exactly. Like a, it's literally, they look like a jigsaw puzzle that was thrown into a stone wall. Unless it's a stylistic that you wanted, like, just patchwork looking, why would yeah. you then have to cut or chisel these things to, you know what I'm saying? Why don't you just square yeah. them off and use it in, in, yeah. as stones? Wouldn't that be easier? Yeah, why not make them all the same, like a brick, a modern brick, yeah. Uh, number seven, again, there's outcroppings of bedrock under the softened fitted stone walls. So again, just this may be a speculation, but you see these walls with perfectly fitted stones, but there's a big chunk of bedrock that's kind of sticking out like something yes. you can trip over. I was into all of this analysis, by the way. <laughs> right. So like I said, like you're you're that proficient at stonework, yet there, here's this big ledge sticking out of the dirt that people are going to trip over. That it's you right couldn't do anything everything. about. Yes. Yeah. Why couldn't they? Why couldn't that be softened? Okay. So here we go. We have seven different clues as to how the stone work might have been done. He believes rhyolite stones were, were saw cut in the quarry, then hauled down the mountain, and then up the other side of the mountain to the site. Then the stones were transferred from the carrying sleds into these processing trays. These rounded positioning slots or notches were then carved into the bottom edges of the stones so they, they wouldn't shift in these large trays. These things were then lowered into a soaking tank where the quartz-rich igneous stones uh, were soaked in a plant-based softening solution along with a low-intensity sonic vibration that over time softens the rhyolite stone into the consistency, uh, the video says, between clay and whale blubber. That's just his thinking. I'm not sure how that was described. And I don't know what he means by sonic vibration, but I will get to that, my own theory on that, in a little bit here. Then the next process is the stone is placed onto a cutting table. Now the stone is starting to harden, so they have to hurry. So then wire saws and sonic saws would then be used to slice up the soft stone the into the needed. sonic saw? I'm going to uh, propose a Which a he doesn't theory. explain at all, by the way. Well, he just says not sonic saws. No, here's the thing. In his defense, you have to watch the other videos. He's I looked a, he's at his channel. Yeah. There is nothing on his channel about sonic saws. Did you watch all the videos? No, but I mean, it Maybe should be in the title. Maybe. If you're just going to say, oh, and we're going to use a floozy blodget. All right, what is a floozy blodget? There's got to be a video about the floozy blodget. Well, so. yes, but at the same time, if you've done a bunch of videos, you don't want to have to keep re-explaining everything like we do. Yeah, but if you're talking about something that no one knows exists, I'm just saying. To be fair to this guy is that we'd have to watch all his videos. And, if, and then if he never explains it, okay. If he does explain it somewhere else, then we just haven't seen it yet. So, but I'm going to give you my my wild off the wall theory on what that might be. So here's the next step: the stone is, uh, you know, shaped and sliced up into while it's still soft into the shapes that you need, into the rough shapes because you can draw a pattern and you know what kind of shapes generally you need. So then you take that stone and you place it into its desired location. And again, I know what this is, but it's a sonic clamp. And it might be something like Ed Lee Skalnin and how he was able, what he claimed was the method he was able to lift these giant stones by himself, a five-foot tall Yeah, but this guy's just guy. putting words out there and not backing up no, how no, they listen, might work no, at all. No, hold on. Just, what I'm, okay. It's unfair to judge this whole theory by a five-minute offshoot video. No, 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 but here's the thing. I think all his observations are spot on. It's right. fascinating. I'm into it. Why is the bedrock there? I'm into all of that. Right. But when he switches gears to how it was done, he completely loses me almost from the jump. With sonic clamps and sonic saws and sonic, what's what? Sonic the Hedgehog? Who's working on it? If you heard five minutes of one of our four hour long marathon idiotic shows and said, this is a bunch of baloney, would that be, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? It's like, we're judging all this on five minutes of just like a cut down video where he's explaining one thing. Maybe he has a book. I don't know. You'd have to get, 
you know what I'm saying, to judge what that, what I, that yeah, thing yeah, is. Yeah, I know. I'm just saying, I looked around for that stuff and didn't see it. I looked through all his videos, his entire catalog. It wasn't huge. It, no, no. But it, it was like none of them seemed to explain what and you we've thought watched, these magical Sonic things were. we've watched one were. that is only five minutes long. Yeah. Now, just hang with me, okay? So I don't know. Okay. Please let me continue. So Please. with the with the Sonic soft stick, the Sonic clamp as methods, because maybe this solves another problem, you, you something you had a problem with, uh, what he says is then the stones are pressed, while they're still semi-soft, pressed into place, while that makes them very soft, smooth, fit exactly, perfectly, no tolerances, no gaps, into the space that they needed. And in this softened state, they then use these sonic tools to get the stone to settle and fit and then left to be hardened. And eventually it hardens back to its natural state over time. Now what he proposes is that this bedrock could not be softened because it couldn't be fit into a tank. This is a process that needs to be soaked with vibration. Okay, talking about sonic clamps, here's my, here's my crazy theory. If these folks had sophisticated knowledge, even just very artisan knowledge about uh, metallurgy, could they create something like a tuning fork that's a rod that produces a vibration? Could this vibration then, see now I'm doing, I sound like Giorgio. Could this vibration <laughs> have aided in the soaking? Because that's what you were saying. Like, well, okay, you soak this rock in this herbal bath bomb. How does the, the, the juice get inside to the middle of the rock to soften that part too? Well, maybe you didn't need to soften all of it because you're only shaping the outsides of it. Maybe it only had to be softened down three or four inches so you could shape the, the general form that's already been quarried. Or maybe the vibration that you're applying in these tubs somehow gets the, uh, the the juice, the 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 mojo to the inside of the rock to make the whole thing kind of softened so you can twist it. Who knows? I'm with all of that. I just don't right. think this guy's presenting it the right way. I, that's just me. This channel, by the way, for folks who are looking for it yeah. on YouTube, it's called Intriguing Megalithic Perspectives. Intriguing Megalithic Perspectives. But what I'm saying is hold your judgment till you've watched a few, not just one five-minute video explaining a very complicated process. Actually, it's not that complicated. There's just, there's a bath in there. So I'm just he, telling you, there's 28 videos up there. One of them's about to how to adjust your headlight on a Volkswagen Jetta. So I, well, I'm you just might want to know that too. <laughs> Maybe he talks about sonic rods and, and vibration with that. You don't know. That's what I'm saying. I don't, I don't but don't I don't judge a video them, by its title. No, but I'm just telling him, looking at all the titles and look at all the covers, there's nothing here suggesting how the sonic stuff he's mentioning in the Oyante Tombo video works. Okay. Okay. He's fired up. I'm just not on board with uh, presenting. I do like the analysis this guy makes, but when he turns corners to as to how he thinks it was done, I'm completely, almost immediately was completely off the train with him. All of this is speculation. Geopolymers True. are speculation. Geopolymers are speculation written about and scientifically studied in peer-reviewed journals and published. That's different from what's happening here. Though. Yes, but my final point, don't make me jump at the end already. Just let me say my point here. Okay. My, uh, here's the thing. If you're, if you're wondering how the Tiwanaku may have found out about this, rather than just spending generations of trial and error, as we talked about before, one comment from Sean Conway about a year ago uh, suggests, uh, listen to this, there are plants that grow in the area that produce an acid that can be used to soften rocks. Explorers noticed that their boots, spurs, and weapons blunted very quickly when traversing the nearby jungles. When they asked the locals, they explained that certain plants produced an acid. They showed the explorers birds that nested in cliff faces that used the leaves to carve out their nests using their beaks into the cliff face. Hmm. 
So it's a natural answer. They, they observe the birds. The birds like, how are they able to make holes in the cliff face? Well, they seem to be gathering this type of a plant That's awesome. and using that to maybe soften the rocks and then pecking at it. Well, but what I was going to say is that vibration, perhaps, I know it's not explained in this video. No, no, no. And we talked about it in the Coral Castle, and I'm on board with the idea so, that... So here's what, something else I sprung on you before, though, is that there's a lot of interesting properties with sound. I believe Ed Lee Scallon knew something about sound and mag electromagnetism. Yeah, there were tuning forks, I think, at the Coral Castle. So that's what I'm saying. There were tuning forks. They found a dynamo that had uh, magnets on it. Well, what else is magnetized up there? Guess what? Tiwanaku. Some stones were yeah, magnetized. that's right. That's right. That's a good point. Here's the other thing that Giorgio points out. When you stick them into one of those blind holes, it, it carved, perfectly carved into the stones, they're magnetized in different directions. Right. What's going on there? What what is that just part of a, is that a byproduct, an accident? Did they magnetize these stones for a reason? And why do they point then and why are they magnetized in different directions depending on what hole you put your compass into? Yeah. Is it magnetism? Is it is it uh vibrations? Because we talked about this earlier. This comes from Science Friday, which you love. Remember yes, the first Flato. podcast I ever listened to, Science Friday. Right. I started thinking about what does vibration do? It has a shape to it. Could the properties of vibration and sound be used to shape anything, like with the properties of what are called cymatics. Now, from the sciencefriday.com website, in an article entitled Seeing the Patterns in Sound, a pair of artists find ghostly imagery in sound vibrations uh, by writer Chan Tu on uh, November 7, 2016. Starts off with an explanation of just what it is. That's all I'm going to read here. In the late 18th century, German physicist and musician Ernst Schladny demonstrated how vibrations could be used to create striking imagery by spreading fine sand across the top of a metal plate and running a violin bow alongside, creating the, the vibration, Schladny showed that the sand would settle into distinct patterns depending on the frequencies of the sound waves produced by the bow. Centuries later, in the 1960s, a Swiss physician named Hans Jenny built on Schladny's experiments in an effort to study vibrational phenomena, what he called cymatics. So there you go. Since the Tiwanaku had skills with sophisticated metallurgy, could they have developed metal rods or saws or lifting claws or, or, or softening tubs that acted like tuning forks, delivering harmonic vibrations that aided in the stonework manipulation? How did they create? This is my question. And this is the other question I have going back to the YouTube channel and also the idea of the softening tub, which was another thing that I jumped off the train on. But like, mm -hmm. I because I'm on board with the geopolymer idea and the acidic components of the agriculture that they were raising so effectively to right. create these geopolymers, which they could cast and then harden and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm also even the idea that's suggested by the YouTube channel that we were just uh, having a spirited debate about. Mm. I'm open to the idea of using acidic plants or, or the, these mm -hmm. plant compounds to soften the outside of the stone, it's the inside part that I, and it's funny, why am I drawing, well, why am I drawing my line yeah. in the sand here? Like, <laughs> oh, well, yeah, sure. You can soften the outside of a rock, but the inside, give right. me a break. Because my thing is yeah. like, why is the outside working? And then the inside, okay, that's a sonic thing. What is the, how are you applying anything sonic to a stone like I that? I don't Which know. I think Leeds Gallen might have done in the Coral Castle, which is another thing we've covered before, but. Let's set aside the sonic yeah. thing. If you can have a some kind of an acid bath yeah. 
that will soften, let's say, just two or three inches inside the stone. Like that's, you know, it's, the stone is porous, especially, well, depending, depending on, on the it stone. Is, Limestone is super porous. So yeah, right. It can sink in, certainly, a certain degree. And that's all you need to get a shape out of it that you right. want. Because you're not, like I said, you're not take, starting off with a giant medicine ball shaped round thing and trying to make Costa it Rica. square. That's inefficient. balls in Costa Rica. Yeah. <laughs> right. More efficiently is you start off with a cut that's more like the shape you want to end up right. with. You know, why spend all that time and effort whittling this big old ball down into something, you know, so you start off the standing stones, the lazy stones, the very first ones quarried are in the general shape. And then they just need to get them a little bit fashioned into something that will fit into the the hole they're trying to patch. Right. So let's set that aside, though. So really, though, you just have a chemical process. Now we're back to geopolymers which I think, again, for me, it's not that out there. And it's not out there for COGS, which it carries way more weight than how we feel about <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like I said. Got a doctorate in chemical engineering. He's like, you know what? This is plausible. There's parts of this that are plausible. Although he still didn't think it was the most likely explanation. Well, because so. it has more moving parts. There's more chemistry. Yeah. The other one is like, well, okay, so the, the chisel and hammer approach, the crash and sink, the just chisel this out for centuries... That's not as complicated, but it just seems like a, a lot of a lot of work to get something. And also, there are artisan techniques being used that are still baffling. If you're right. just going to use a, a brass chisel and a rock hammer, it doesn't make that much sense to me. So to wrap up my long rambling, whatever you want to call this, I like this theory of geopolymers and stone softening because it, it again it it seems to answer a lot more questions for me anyway about the unbelievable precision and artistry found at Tiwanaku and elsewhere. But until we unearth more evidence about their technology, I, I think we have to take the stance of archaeology. That's where I'm going to land on this. And yeah. people might be blown away by that. No, I, <laughs> I love archaeology. And I think that's the most logical. I think we have to take the stance of archaeology and just admit we don't know how they accomplished their amazing feats. And that is the mystery of Pumapunku. That's going to wrap up our series, The Mystery of Pumapunku. A very special thanks to our good friend, Dr. Chris Cogswell, for joining us tonight. We'll be back in two weeks with a new show. Meanwhile, visit patreon.com slash astonishinglegends to access our exclusive bi-weekly junk drawer show that runs every week the main show is dark. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Josh Harrod. I'm Natasha Levis. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm Natasha Levis. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. S-A-R-A-H. S-A-R-A-H. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>